Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another interseason episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Snogden. Five, four, three, <laughs> two, one. Sequelizers are go! <laughs> excellent, yeah. excellent work there, Matthew. Some of those won't count. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll explain what that means in a moment. Yeah. But speaking of things that won't count, we're also joined by Tim Matum. Why, this podcast is automatic. It's systematic. <laughs> it's hydromatic. Why, it sequelizes. <laughs> Did I do the exact same one for the Grease episode? I think you might have done it. No, no, that means we could now synchronize it into a song. We so, Jack yeah. doing the same thing and then we like got a trio. Harmony. Am I just doing the, oh, wow, in the background of my little... You just did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the edit. <laughs> Someone's got to cut this we, on the internet We just cut that. And then that's the whole song sorted. Love it. Yeah, like a weird Grease acapella tribute from us here at Sequelizers. Yep. Well, we're not talking about Grease. <laughs> well, it might come up, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Because we are, in fact, talking about movie vehicles in this episode. And a lot of you are jumping to a lot of thoughts and conclusions right now just from me saying those words. We will explain ourselves, don't worry. <laughs> we'll we're probably to. expecting In great length. Yeah, we're probably expecting a lot of this episode is going to be us explaining what counts as a vehicle and what doesn't count as a vehicle. <laughs> and not always reaching a consensus on that. <laughs> Debating and disagreeing <laughs> with each other. So yeah. We did that yeah. for an hour before we started recording. <laughs> and then we realised, hold on a minute, this should be the podcast. <laughs> yeah. We could be monetizing this conversation. Oh Why are we having a conversation and not recording it? What the point? <laughs> that isn't the most 2022 sentence. I don't know what it is. Uh, that's true. Painfully true. Why hang out with your friends when you can monetize hanging out <laughs> with your friends? <laughs> mm. Speaking of monetization, let's say a lovely little thank you to the fantastic people on patreon.com slash sequelizer, shall we, gentlemen? Yes. Thank you. Let's do it. Brilliant. If you, dear listeners, would like to get ad-free episodes and early access to all the episodes and exclusive bonus episodes, exclusive merch, even little things like getting your face digitized in the style of our usual season artwork by the one and only Mr. John Scarrett. You can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers, become a patron at the various different tiers. Even at the lowest tiers, you still get early access, you still get ad-free episodes. That's just the start of it. There's exclusive merch if you go up higher. There's exclusive discounts on our entire merch store if you go up higher. It's all kinds of stuff. And now we're in the season. You get full bonus episodes multiple times throughout the season. And mm. it's like, I don't know, we were saying this the other day, like, they're proper episodes. It's not like we're kind of half-arsing it. I mean, like, oh, it's some topic that, you know, no. it's not like, oh, it didn't make the cut and we'll just chuck it and that'll be fine. Like, we recorded one the other night. It was two hours long, um, full in-depth conversation. Very, very interesting. And every time we do this, we think to us, and we mentioned in this, we reference an episode going, hang on, hang on, was that bonus content? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've done that a few times like yeah. yeah yeah we talked about that in scroll through podcast feed oh shit yeah that was between season seven and season eight yeah. or whatever it was, it was they're like, great yeah. interesting conversations yeah one of the ones we recently did is films within films which is a very weird and interesting topic i feel like kind of gets under discussed and if you'd like to hear us talk about that now is a good time to join the patreon you then get access to all the backlog of all of our completely stupid and ridiculous outtakes and all of the previous exclusive episodes and a couple of movie commentaries. We will be doing them in the future at some point. Don't worry. We'll, we will, they will return at some point. But yeah, go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. Get access to all that good stuff. Support your boys at sequelizers. And that makes all the stuff possible. We've hit a stretch goal. Hence when we did the MCU trilogy. 
at the beginning of this interseason. And now we're working on more merch because we hit the other stretch goal. So, yeah, thank you very much for the support, everybody. And if you'd like to join them, there's a link in the show notes. We can go to our website. There's links on the website as well. It's a lovely little thing you can do to support us. And the people who support us at the highest tiers are the executive producers. These wonderful folks for this week are... Isn't there somebody else I can talk to, a supervisor or something? I mean, it can't be the absolute and final word in driver's licenses. Girlie, as far as you're concerned, I'm the messiah of the DMV. Josh Miles. He is in a vehicle. Make it color. Uh, it's a black tank. James McDowell. When the course is laid and the anchors weigh, a sailor's blood begins racing. With our hearts unbound and our flag unfurled, we're underway and off to see the world. Underway and off to see the world. Xenos. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I have the only gun on board. Welcome to Con Air. Michael Belcher. To me, there's no point in being in America unless you can drive a Detroit muscle car. And I want to drive a Dodge Challenger. <laughs> Fuck me swinging balls out. <laughs> Josh van der Sluis. Here we go, Wilson. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll do all the paddling. You just hang on. Jonathan Firth Clark. Are you receiving me? Repeat, are you receiving me? Request your position. Come in, Lancaster. You seem like a nice girl. I can't give you my position. Instruments gone, crew gone too. All except Bob here, my sparks. He's dead. The rest all bailed out on my orders. Time 0335. You get that? Crew bailed out 0335. Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, G for George. Send them a signal. Got that? Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, Apple, G, George. They'll be sorry about Bob. We all liked him. Mike Salvia. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> you forgot to say please. Colin Thompson. April, April. Übung ist das halbe Leben. Nur kein Moos ansetzen. Oh, Alarm. <laughs> And Philip Morgan. No ticket. Thank you, executive producers, for your support. It makes all the difference and makes all of this possible. And like I said, it made all of our stretch goals possible. Mm. It makes all the bonus content possible. It makes all the live streams possible, all of our equipment, all that kind of stuff. And it really means the world to us for your support. Keeps the show free for those who can't afford it. Exactly. Always a fantastic point. Exactly. So thank you very much, everyone on Patreon, and thank you, executive producers. Now should we get stuck into the debate? Because I'm, I'm... What I'm is a vehicle? Yeah. It seemed like such a simple topic. We're like, yeah, movie vehicles. No problem. Well, well we initially had one very clear thing. We mm. did. One caveat. Which was no spaceships. No space! No spaceships. Because... And no capes. Well, yeah. <laughs> we then debated capes. We were like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because spaceships is essentially... It could be an episode in its own right. It will be. And it will, yes, at some point it will be. And another one that will be, before any of you hardcore fans in the Discord start shouting it, mechs are going to be their own episode as well. Otherwise, there have been three mechs. They are <laughs> vehicles, I would argue. Mm. Yeah. There we go. See, mm. see. Mm. 
Mm. We're starting off straight away. But mm. yeah, mechs are a big enough genre that they will get their own thing. Don't you worry. But in truth, it's even trickier because we were saying about the, the literally just naming vehicles. Is the first half of this episode just going to be oh. us, one of us <laughs> saying one word and the other two going, mm, uh, I don't know about that. Mm, maybe. <laughs> or mm. or a resou- one saying a resounding yes and the other saying yeah. a resounding no. Yes. Which has happened a couple of times and the already as well. just being literally immediately putting a flag and saying, I'm yeah. with this person because I agree and or disagree. <laughs> Um, I think that the, the general sort of consensus is when you start thinking about things like, well, obviously, movie cars could be a thing in its own. That's like tons of things, movie mm. cars. I think, what about like bigger cars? Like, what? Trucks, lorries, buses? Oh, yeah, they all count, that mm. sort of thing. Right, okay, fine. What else do you got? Two wheeled cars? Oh, bikes, motorbikes. What about bikes without engines? Bicycles? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. It's mm. no problem at all. Obviously, then there's the sky. You got planes and helicopters mm-hmm. and things. Yeah, sure. Oh, and the sea. So you got boats and canoes mm. and submarines and cool, cool, cool. That all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then you start getting into territory of, what about this? Mm. And you got one like, a tank. No, a tank works out fine. That's yeah. no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Tim, what do you want to bring up the one we still haven't made a decision on? Uh, I am of the opinion that a skateboard is a vehicle, I but roller skates aren't. I feel like you can't have one without the other, Tim. I understand that you wear one and you don't wear the other. Yeah. And that is the distinction. I think for I think you. I think this is the distinction for me when we because when we were talking about other things, so I was like, mm. hang glider, vehicle. Mm. Parachute, not a vehicle. Mm. Jetpack vehicle. I think jetpack is a vehicle. I don't think a jetpack See, is a vehicle. How is jetpack not a vehicle? And we said too. I said so we like I say a skateboard is like, okay, fine. But a rollerblade isn't. So I said, of course, because if it's strapped to your foot, then it's not a thing. It's just yeah. a, a fancy shoe. So, well, hang on, that means skiing so and skis snowboard. and snowboards aren't, yeah. And you also yeah. said, Yeah, they're not. It's like yeah. hmm. I said, that, okay, so surfboards aren't. And you both went well. <laughs> you can paddle out to sea on a on a bodyboard or a ski uh, uh, on skis. I on a board. Surf, surfboard is the one I feel less least sure about because a kayak and a canoe, I would definitely say, are vehicles. Hundred yeah. percent. And it's like the line between surfboard and kayak, and I'm sure that there's some people who are very good with both. But to me, one is just like. You th- okay, you throw away the paddle and you stand up and now the kayak has become a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that's not actually the case. but oh I also think uh, a toboggan counts, even though I don't know if it should. Like if it's going sl- down like sleds and sledges and stuff? Y- yes, because it's, well, mm, more like uh, <laughs> cool runnings. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Because in that sense, it's like, well, yes, but it's going, down a, it's going around a set track. It's like, yeah, mm. but so is a train and a train counts. Like, yeah. shit, good point. And like, what you about... do sit in it as well. Yeah, yeah that's a pretty key feature. And, yeah, because we said a, a steed or a mount or an animal that you climb onto is not a vehicle. No, it's sentient all those sorts of bits pieces. Yeah. But a cat bus you can get into is a vehicle. It's like, yeah. Oh my god! And we start going down such a fucking deep, dark conversation <laughs> before we even started the actual conversation of what we were going to talk about. And here we are again. Merriam-Webster has the definition of vehicle as Hello. a machine that is used to carry people or goods. From one place to another. Machine is such a broad term. I get everywhere. you can get wagons with that. But is mm. a hot air balloon a machine? I guess it is. There's a mechanical component. A skateboard, yeah. I would say, is not a machine. Is a broomstick a machine? No. no. <laughs> is cat bus? Maybe. <laughs> cat buses. We don't know the inner workings of a cat bus. Examples yeah. include cars, trucks, and other vehicles. Fuck's sake. Thanks, Merriam Webster. That's what we're gonna do, Merriam Webster. I don't know yeah. shit. God, I'm Americans. No offense, Americans. Um, All the fence, Americans. Yeah, there are some really fucking Webster just being like, no use in all of these words, just to be a dick. <laughs> yeah. Google defines a vehicle. Definitions from Oxford this time. Okay. So this is British, if you will. Could easily be full of bastards. 
a thing used for transporting people or goods, that's especially on land, such as a car, lorry, or cart. Okay, that's that's even worse. Especially on land. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> but I think, but I think a, the, counts, a thing right? used for transporting people or goods. That is correct. Y- yeah, sure, sure. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Transport is the bit that's there. That's the bit of issue. Okay, okay. So a rickshaw are you, counts, are right? You, yeah. Okay, there you go. Are you transported by rollerblades? Yeah, you're transporting yourself. <laughs> oh, I, emotionally, yes. But <laughs> to the to the mid nineties, <laughs> in a way, we're all transported to 1994. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so th- anyway, point is. There are a lot of ways you can you can boil it down, and that's kind of what we're getting at as a point. Mm. That when you start talking that and applying to Jack as another one, Cambridge Dictionary <laughs> <laughs> defines vehicle as a machine, usually with wheels and an engine, used for transporting people or goods, especially on land. They're getting Cambridge. more and more specific. It's started off as like it's a car, isn't it? So to them, thing. to them, a boat is not a vehicle, especially on land. Is such a weird. Yeah, that special land thing is what I'm like. What do they define boat as? I bet they define it as a boat. (laughs) Boat is a boat. Um, Especially on water. Yeah. What about that? As a small vehicle for travelling on water. Fuck you! Fuck you, Cambridge Dictionary. Full of its fucking wheels. (laughs) Um, Oh my god. Yeah. Again, that's why you always like. I was like, well, you know, it's a. It's a it's a device for transport with wheels that goes on land, like a hot air balloon. We're getting uh, uh, we're getting into real like Diogenes holding up a plucked chicken and saying, "Behold a man." That's exactly what it is. Yes. It, it's, it becomes so granular that it becomes nonsense. Yes. Uh, Welcome hello, to the next ninety goes. minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so basically, um, th- they're the outlines of where. We- oh, oh, by the way, we haven't we've missed off one big thing here. We we said no spaceships, mm-hmm. and we're sticking to that. Don't worry. But then I said to these guys, "Hang on, if a tank counts." Which it does. And surely an ATSD from Star Wars counts. And an ATAT yes. does. Well. Yeah, it does. But they're not mechs. Um, no. And then Tim brought up speeder bikes. They count as well. Yeah. Yep. Of course they do. Yep. Mm. Yes, we're not, we're not ruling out sci fi and fantasy. We're just no. saying nothing that goes into space. Yeah. But land speeder intentionally. The, things, yeah. the land speeder things, spy, speeder bikes. Yep. All that kind of stuff counts as well. But again, mm-hmm. for sure. an animal mount like a Tonton doesn't count. Uh, the, the horse. Pulling Gandalf's cart doesn't count, but the Gandalf's cart itself yeah. is fine. Yes. Welcome to the episode. Um, Riveting podcast. Everyone is probably very angry at this point or confused or both. Yeah. And you're not alone. So let's just talk about how to start with. Uh, let's do the thing we did with in, in, a, in, a, in a Patreon episode of Films Within Films and another Patreon episode about uh, food on film. Mm. Mm. This is a background thing most of the time, yet it can play such an important and integral role yeah. to a film. Yeah, it's a it's a case of like there are films about different types of vehicles that we could do an entire episode on car movies, for Easily. example, mm. or boat movies, or mm. whatever, or plane mm. movies, in fact. Yeah. But the fact that yeah, so often it can just be a background thing, or yeah. like you don't even think about it, but like. I guess they were always in the same car in that film. I hadn't really thought about it. And there's mm. some, that was the actor's car and he brought it on set and blah, blah, mm. blah, 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 all yeah. that kind of stuff. But it's not like this big integral moment and it hasn't got like a name or something like that because mm. a lot of them will get on screen names and, and all this kind of stuff. like, take the DeLorean, for example, yeah. like one of the, I would argue one of the most iconic movie cars. Mm. Yes. Is is a very fucking integral part of the plot of <laughs> Back well, to the Future. It is. It is the time machine yeah. that they travel with. It, you're right. It's the central uh, catalyst or component how the story goes forward. But also, it was a joke in the '80s that has not aged yeah. well. By which I mean, 
the joke of the 80s was you took this ridiculous fucking nonsense car that sold mm. really badly and yeah. functions yeah. really badly and yeah but now it's like i really want one of those cars they're iconic like, yeah. no they were always shit that was kind of the point yeah. of the car. it was a it was a laughing stock i can't think of a, an equivalent now which would be a car that was a complete disaster um uh, maybe maybe the tesla truck um yeah oh god with the window that broke the fucking uh, hyperloop I know that's not a car, no, but, but you right. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the slits that the cars go on in that yeah, or something. I hate that so much. But like, I mean, Back to the Future is a really good example because you have the DeLorean, which, like Jack said, is one of the most iconic movie vehicles, especially cars, you it's know, of all, yeah. of all time. But you also have the car where Biff is trying to feel up Marty's mum. Yeah. yeah. Like, but you wouldn't think of that. That's just, oh, that's just a car they happen to be yeah. in. Biff's you fancy know. black car that he rides into the manure all the time. That's yeah. A- an important integral part of his character and the mm. story and the setting because it's the 50s it's yeah it's all feeds into it it's it's the thing uh, you know and even in the film the delorean is incredibly important until it's not like yeah. there's a huge chunk of that movie where the delorean's just hidden away and it doesn't matter yeah you know and and it's all about marty you know exploring the 50s and stuff like that Marty only really drives in the delorean a bit yeah it's out of like commission the, for all the three yeah the delorean's probably only in about 20 minutes of all (laughs) of the film you know they take it out of the equation as fast as possible every time yeah (laughs) um which is kind of it's sort of exactly what we were getting at in that they can either be incredibly central or they can be just background stuff yeah and you don't really acknowledge them and then but then as soon as someone starts pointing them out and going like and and this is so much a tool of cinema because it's not just about the characters necessarily talking about them but it's about the way the camera frames a vehicle because it can either just be that thing in the background or a mm. place where your characters are having a conversation that you don't really think about. Yeah. As soon as you start having a shot that lingers on it or pays attention or, you know, does a close up on the, the wheels spinning or whatever, or, you know, whatever, then suddenly you start thinking about it and you think, oh yeah, that is their car. Some of the most iconic shots in Taxi Driver, for obvious reasons, is the fucking taxi coming out of the smoke. Yep. Mm. Yeah, obviously we think of Travis Bick and all the things he's been doing and him in his flat and him going through with the guns. But Are you talking opening, to me and all that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, but some but... opening shots of that, just that cab yep. rolling through with the music is like, fuck, this is haunting. It's also called mm. Taxi Driver. It's called Taxi Driver. <laughs> yeah, it's, it establishes his character. And if you want to see the prime example and one that is central focus for cars especially of how you shoot the car, the conversation has to take place in the car. The scene has to take place in the car. Everything's been put about how you film this car, the Bond franchise. Yeah. Those fucking Aston Martins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing is, it's such a strange thing because it is a, a almost a product placement advert, basically, for buy this car. That's an unattainable car that nobody can buy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not just go, the go and buy movie. a DB9. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yet, the way that it's filmed, it's filmed like it's uh, an object of desire. Mm. A uh, almost sexual, sexualized thing <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of how it's presented, and and then low angles rolling along that mm. kind of shit. It's all it's all very much enigmatic. In and it's always very rarely shown as a practical thing either. Mm. You see practical versions of cars in in Bond. That's why that's why the Jason Bourne thing, and this is why it's interesting. The Jason Bourne thing is we think of that mini chase scene in mm. Paris. Thing it was what? I yeah, it I is. Remember yeah. the scene is now. Yeah. My mind. Point is that's not a really you know arguably iconic car mm. even though it is but it's not shot as such it's shot as a look what he's doing with the car and they have that moment just before the the chase begins yeah. where he's literally talking about the practical things he's like are the tires all pumped yes, up yes yes you know is there anything i need to know about the car like james bond never think like never no. checks his oil or whatever you know no. because the car is is a fantasy it's a object magic car. yeah it's exactly. a herbie. sometimes literally oh, very it goes so invisible good. and does all kinds of bollocks yeah yeah 
And um, and you even get that moment in Skyfall where if you don't know what James Bond is and somehow you've avoided the oh, Aston yeah, Martin, yeah. Mm. there's just reveal of an old car and no, 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 no. And you're like, what the fuck is well, this? You know it's important because the film's telling you it's important. Yes. But you don't know how why yeah. that same yeah. connection. But, okay, cool. I mean, <laughs> another great example is... For a certain generation of British person, if you start singing about, you know, self-preservation yeah. society, <laughs> it's like, hey, Minnie. It's like, mm. what are you talking about? Yeah. And there are two really iconic style cars in, in the Italian job. One is the Mini, obviously. Mm. And the second is that big fucking bus. Yeah. yeah. Um, or but even, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors Well, there's the one that blows the doors off. Or yeah. one you're r- driving around and they're trying to like, hang on, boys. Yeah. Oh, great idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these things are huge. And this is, and this is the key thing. This is just one type of vehicle. Yeah. And it's unspooled. We've just so been talking about cars the last 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah. And that's, that's not even cars that transform into Autobots. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God. Um, and also, we should just go around here. I can't drive. Mm. Matt, can you drive? I have a license. I don't have a car. Jack? Same. I have a license, but I don't have a car. Yeah. We don't none, care. None of us are particularly <laughs> car people or vehicle people in any sense. Yeah. You know. I've, I've... Have you driven a boat, Matthew? You yes. Like a, yeah, of course you have. Look at you. Ask me if I've flown a plane. Have you flown a plane, Matthew? Yes. Yeah, fucking hell. Ask me if I've skateboarded. Have you skateboarded, Matthew? Yes. I've skateboarded. Yeah. I've ever driven a tank. Not a vehicle, though. <laughs> uh, have you ever driven a tank? Yes. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, I, have, I have operated have you ever hang, so many vehicles. Have you ever hang glided? Yes. <laughs> have you ever parachuted? Yes. Really? Yeah. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> for a man who doesn't like It was heights. one of those ones where I was strapped to another person kind of thing. Yeah. It wasn't skydiving. I would hope so, yes. It was yes. a parachuting thing, but it was also very, very low down. But the point is... Mm. Did not enjoy it. <laughs> Submarine, Matthew? Submarine, yes. What? What? <laughs> What's it? I haven't... Oh, no, hang on. Sorry. I've been in one. I haven't piloted one. Like, yeah, yeah. I've sat in the seat and pretended to for a photo, but I've okay. not done it properly. A, a I mean, that's still fu- pretty impressive. Uh, most moving people have function- not been in a submarine. Hold on. A moving functioning submarine? Yeah. Because one of things to see the bottom of the sea floor and things like that. Like a big glass boat bottom with its car that goes underwater. I've had an interesting life. <laughs> a mech? <laughs> I'm yes. not at liberty to say. <laughs> <laughs> That, the, yeah. that that Gundam statue in Japan. <laughs> yeah, I got inside. Yeah. yeah, but this thing, despite this, I'm passionate about the film side of things and what it says about the mm. genre. But wait, in terms wait, of like, wait, 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 wait. you're passionate about film. I know, I know, I know. I've been doing this podcast for a while. <laughs> Why haven't you I've, told I've us this under, before? Under the lid for a while. You keep that such a secret. <laughs> I know. But Tim's entirely right. Despite all that and all the bits and pieces, maybe oh, uh, Tim one day when he was like seven got in a small train and pushed the lever forward and the train went forward. He's like, yeah, but he's not like. Going to fucking train stations and enjoying the trains, even it's if not likes... Francis Bourgeois on TikTok, exactly. is it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But when you start dissecting these things in films, you get a very classically pinch it. Because again, you st- once you start categorizing something, that really falls into our wheelhouse. <laughs> That's when we start to step up our game and like, actually, now I have an opinion. Did you have an opinion before? Nope, apparently, got tons of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, Welcome to three white guys doing a podcast. That's, that's painfully, painfully true. So once we got past the categorization side... We didn't. We never got past the categorization side, for the record. But once we move on from once the Once we've abandoned it, yes. <laughs> yes. We, you end up with the situation, as we say, of like how we've experienced it. Mm. When do you start... Real- like I said, with the food on film thing, when do you mm. start realizing that a car isn't just a car? Like, that looks cool. Mm. You, there's usually an age where you go, wow, that would be... And it's usually something fantasy-based or something that isn't necessarily real, like a James Bond car. Mm. You're like, I really wish I had that. Mm. Um, and as, you know young kids in Britain, we were marked to like have a matchbox car kind of thing. You're like, oh, you want that kind of thing. And mm. it's like, I never really give a shit about driving personally, mm. but I like the idea of this. Mm. I like that in Thunderbirds, one of the things that goes up into Thunderbird 2 is a big giant fucking drill. Yeah. On a, on a, on a, on a, <laughs> the mole. Yeah, on Caterpillar. Like, that's pretty interesting. 
that's a vehicle. The Technodrome from Turtles. That's <laughs> a vehicle. And or a fortress. Hard to tell. Um, better both. Th- better both. Um, but that's the point. You, you are sold when you're a child accessories for action figures. So you are told mm. very early on that the vehicle is the big, you know, the action base, the HQ, that's the big thing to mm. get. But the vehicle is the accessible thing you might get. The, the Ecto-1, the fucking mm. DeLorean. These are the things you go, that's my shit. And also for our purposes, like the important thing is how vehicles are used on screen. Yes. Because as we said, they can be just literally like background setting, you know, a, a, a convenient place to hold a conversation or to show how a character gets from A to B. The car in Pulp Fiction, uh, yeah. b- top conversation between uh, Jules and Vega. Mm. The car is just a car. Oh, with Marvin sat in the back. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. you don't. Yeah. I mean, what happens in the car? The events that yeah. you were talking about, Tim. That's integral. Mm. To that. That's so vital. That pushes things so far forward. But mm. the car itself, it's irrelevant what it is. Yes, but then car vehicles, cars, boats, etc., can also be. They can be an expression of setting. Yes to tell you about the world that you're in. And they can also be an expression of character to tell you about the individual mm. that owns them or the individual that's, you know, operating them at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where they matter in cinema is yeah. when you do storytelling with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having setting, ha- having a setting defined by a vehicle is such an interesting thing you can use to turn what seems like a normal kind of thing or a fairly like uninteresting thing into a really interesting concept. Like take Locke, for example, which we've, oh, we've, we've touched yeah. on a couple of times here on the show. The Tom Hardy is in a car for 90 minutes movie that doesn't leave that car for the entire film, basically. And it's just a bloke in a car with a weird brummy accent. And that's <laughs> it. And then Snowpiercer. It's an mm. entire society, basically this city essentially mm. in a train. And the entire film is on this one train. Mm. Yeah. And the train is such an integral part of Snowpiercer and the claustrophobia and yeah. the, the literal carriage-to-carriage class systems and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Everything is shaped by the function of the train. Exactly. The train has to keep going. The train is structured in a way like, okay, well, it's on rails, so we have no control over where it's going. Mm-hmm. It's set. You have different carriages, so you're not just all in one, uh, you know, in, in one vehicle kind of thing. There's, yeah. there's separate zones to it. Yeah. Which is such a perfect way to segregate the different yeah. types of characters. And mm-hmm. surprise, surprise, it's a filmmaker from Korea doing a thing about class. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bong Joon-ho. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, having Snowpiercer set on a train is such a brilliant way to convey the message of that film in a unique way. You could do it in a skyscraper or... Mm. In some other futuristic thing, like in basically space high rise. Or... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think Snowpiercer stands out for me because it is a really interesting take on that and the fact that it mm. is this kind of dystopian post apocalyptic thing yeah. on the train, like one of the only remaining <laughs> civilizations on the planet, as far as we know. Yeah. And a similar kind of thing with Locke. You get that claustrophobia. It's this one person's journey. And if, the, if you know, he was traveling on a bus or whatever mm. you could do the opposite of that and see like oh some people are getting off and some mm. people are getting on and you would hear like little snippets of their stories and mm. you could do some clever storytelling there but Locke is all about that character it's all about Locke and just basically staring into Tom Hardy's eyes for 90 minutes yeah. and that's a key part of the setup and the claustrophobia and the intimacy of that film they're both examples where the choice of vehicle links into the central themes of the film and then mm. and then goes on to okay 
oh, you know, it's a film all about, you know, isolation and, you know, he's he's by himself. Mm-hmm. So, oh, we'll stick him, you know, that'd be a really interesting thing. We'll stick him in a car by himself. I don't know if this is the thought process that they had, but, you sure. know, you can see how it goes and go, oh, okay. And then because he's in a car by himself, we can do these interesting things. And it's that feedback loop of once you make that decision and you have that good idea mm. that certain decisions, you know, feed into each other. And, you know, sometimes you then get that amazing loop and you get a great film like Snowpiercer, for example, yeah. you know, and sometimes it doesn't quite work. And, you know, then it's just, well, the car's just a car or, you know, yes. it just, it you know, it looks very cool, but it doesn't, you know, the DeLorean does not have a thematic resonance in Back to the Future, particularly beyond just being, mm. hey, that car's stupid, but we turned it into a time machine. Yeah, entirely. And the fact that in like Locke, for example, the, the car by extension, even the road and the method with he's going, it means that he is on a literal one-way street. He could mm. turn up at any time to go back to his family. He's like, no, 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 I have to do this. I've, I've, I've set myself on this, on this path, for lack of a better word. Mm. And more importantly, uh, Snowpiercer and Locke are two wonderful examples for that reason. They're, they're essentially, people know the shorthand of a train and a car, roughly. Mm. But there's enough there you can say, well, we can do a thing where he talks into the rearview mirror. So you can mm. see he's talking to himself. And on the train, you can explain how and why certain things... The, the track is just a circle, so we don't mm. worry about that. But you can explain that it needs to fuel itself somehow. Mm. And some people are sent outside for whatever reason, the conditions. But it becomes the world building. So, for example, if the, the HMS Surprise on in um, Master and Commander. Mm. Not everyone knows the way that an 1800s ship with, you know, was it a rigging ship, was full mm. sail, whatever it is, um, would be operated. And how many members of crew and how there's a separation between officers and galley men, mm. all that sort of stuff. And that film is famous for its quote-unquote historical accuracy, yes. despite mm. it being a fictionalized version of it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. But era-specific stuff with all the mechanics of how that ship works and how the yeah. hierarchy works and all that kind of stuff is immaculately detailed yeah. and it's spectacular the amount of carpenters mm. on board because when you get hit by something or something falls over you only have the boat mm. you have yeah. or the ship i should say if it's right. if it why would you need a carpenter on a boat it's like of course you need a carpenter yeah, on a boat. yeah. <laughs> you, it, it's like oh, oh i see that's when you get like hit by cannons like yeah sometimes but sometimes things just happen in weather and you need yeah. to go ashore find a tree cut it down make a new one it's like what it's like yeah you're not make you're new not planks just, there's no like garages you can stop off at you mm. have to that's not just and that's the thing it's not just a vehicle that's your home mm. that's and that's why the tank thing also comes into like like fury the david ayer film it's this thing that keeps these five people together i think it's five of them same. keeps them together as a crew because it's like that thing keeps you alive but makes you a huge target there's all there's so many components you can take mm. on board because the vehicle is there and not just as you say a setting that happens to be a thing yeah and and you know this is the thing that vehicles and transportation are quite universal experiences yes. you know even if we none of us own a car but we've all driven in cars we've all been on trains we've all been on planes and boats etc yep. etc but that means that there's because it's so universal there's then lots of kind of lenses that you can apply to it and you can have a film like lock where it's one person in a car and suddenly it becomes a story about loneliness and isolation and you yeah. know the, the the fact that he's only got you know himself to talk to or he's got people that he's talking with via the phone but it's you're, you're at a distance there mm-hmm. and you know it's driving through the night and there's there's all those kind of imagery and thematic stuff associated with it but then you could take a different film like clueless for example and the bit where she's learning to drive and they accidentally get on the freeway yeah and send, and because you've got multiple people in the car it becomes about group bonding and you mm-hmm. know uh sort of forging relationships and this shared experience and stuff yeah. and there's so many different because we've all been in vehicles and experienced different moods while we're in them and you can be 
happy or you can be terrified or you can be sad and you know they they function like little boxes of setting essentially you know and contained yet not exactly and so there's so many different things you can do with them in film and you can have films where they're so central to the performance and the the overall just kind of mood of the film but then you can also have them where they're just this cool thing Mm. yeah yeah because you're either the question of agency is so fascinating Mm. are you in a plane because you're going somewhere of your own choice. Mm. Are you going... Is it the scene in The Wedding Singer where he's getting on the plane, not because he wants to go somewhere, he wants to get to Drew Barrymore to talk to her? Are you a situation when you're on a plane because it's Red Eye and Killian Murphy is, you know... Going to kill you. Exactly. Are you on a plane because it's my plane, get off my goddamn plane, (laughs) it's Air Force One. What's the situation? Mm. Are you on a plane because it's a tiny prototype glidery thing and you've got to get into New York to find the president? (laughs) (laughs) Or are you on a plane because you're a prisoner being transported con air style? There are yeah. so many aspects and facets to it, and it ends up taking on its own personality inside of it. So is it a cage? Is it a prison? Is it a a, a point of liberation or freedom? Mm. Is it an express like a, the the blue Cadillac in um I think it's Cadillac or Thunderbird, I'm not sure. Um I know it's blue and not red, that's damn sure. In Thelman Louise. Mm. That's an expression of like literal mm. freedom and also being uh, and choice uh, of expression as a way out mm. of how that film ends. Yeah. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the film. So, the, and that's, again, we're back to Cars again. But, and also there can be, there can be ways of how we present things. So for example, I, I cannot, I cannot envision a film about the Vietnam War without fucking helicopters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big Huey motherfuckers. Right of the yeah. Valkyries and stuff. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's mm. so iconic because it's seen the news. It's part of that, that military operation. It's iconically ingrained into the whole thing. Mm. It's, it's, it's un- inseparable. And that's where you get Again, you can use it as so many metaphors. I mean, uh, the uh, the girl on the train uh, mm. with Emily Blunt. Not a great film, not an adaptation. It's fine, but it is the idea of like the train's kind of just a method to get mm. her. She happens to oversee something. Mm. It's uh, the train in in arguably in um, uh, Double Indemnity, and then the car that doesn't start. There's so many bits and pieces. <laughs> yeah, that fucking car. Um, there's so many bits and pieces. The train in fucking Back to the Future. Mm. Either the one that goes over the edge. Yeah, or the one there's that... there's a flying train. Flying as well. train. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's it's fascinating how quickly it can take central focus, and and again talking about like the idea of character. The planes don't look any different in Top Gun, but those MIGs are terrifying. Yeah, because <laughs> they're coming from a boy, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and and the way that and I touched on this already, but like one film can use different vehicles to say different things, and I won't dwell on this too much because I'm drifting in spaceships here. But sure. for example, the AT-ATs in in Star Wars and the ATSTs. Yes. You know, we we generally we very rarely see inside those unless the heroes are going inside them. So they're this kind of monolithic. They all look the same. There's very little like customization to them. Yeah, they they are just a monolithic representation of the Empire as this unstoppable force, mm. as this you know faceless thing. Similar to the tripods in War of the Worlds. Yeah, that kind of shit. Then you go for something like the the pod racers and the Millennium Falcon. Where they're much more like, oh, okay, we've got to, I've got to tinker with this thing to make it work, which is kind of just code for like, hey, it's a shitty car. Mm. Yes. Um, <laughs> the 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 bus from um, Little Miss Sunshine. Yes. It's like you yeah. have to all push it to get it going. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to run into it. You know, oh, it's a cold day, so I've got to let the engine run for like ten, you know, t- ten yeah. minutes yeah. before, and then you've got to kind of like jiggle the key then as you do. You know, it's all that. <laughs> it's keying into those experiences, and so it makes well, it back to fucking Biff. Nobody started this car but yeah. me. Um, so it makes it much more personal. And again, with the Millennium Falcon, it's it's a 
it's a home as well as a as a vehicle. Chewy, we're home. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about spaceships. I mean, don't get your hopes up. Stop it. Yeah. It's just for the point of extension of this this point. Yeah. And then you have stuff like the the land speeders yes. and yes. the speeder bikes and stuff like that, where they're they're not really given a huge amount of personality. They're just a function to get from A mm-hmm. to B. But again, I wonder if that's a lot of it comes down to toys. It's a cool sequence. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. Cars and boats and planes and all that shit. It's very largely conversation on huge bits of drama, mm. like a stakeout or something like that. But also, let's face it, someone's got a big fucking chase. And it's the coolest part of the film, mm. if you can see it. Look at you. Well, that, <laughs> that again depends on the kind of film it is. You know, they make, they make toys of Star Wars vehicles. They don't make toys of, I'm trying to think of something, the train from Double Indemnity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't they, Tim? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're Matt goes into the other room, gets his train toy yeah. out. <laughs> what do you call this? Tip? No, you're right. Yeah. I mean, um, if just a... <laughs> can you get, an, uh, can you get a uh, car with Tom Hardy in as a lock action figure? <laughs> the internet i don't know maybe <laughs> but no, you're entirely correct i'm googling I mean, it right now Let's someone's someone's got an etsy thing that they've you know <laughs> yes definitely um and i think the idea like if you think uh stepping into animation for a second and personality and callbacks hmm. sometimes people like seeing things so for example in castle of cagliostro that little car that lupin drives mm. the yellow car that's referenced in other films as well which is a callback in yeah. the same way that in halloween h2o mm. Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, Janet Lee, is is in the film, mm. and she's wearing the same clothes and driving the vehicle that she was in in Psycho. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, huh. And the little tiny musical stings in there, mm. just a little light motif to make a little in joke, as it mm. were. And if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Because again, mm. that car isn't really that iconic, but it kind of is because of the last shot of that movie is that car going into the little mm. pool at the lake, whatever it is. Just just quietly iconic stuff. So in addition to as we say. As a character, as a product placement with mm. Bond, especially, and if you're going to be, if you if you know you're selling toys like the, the prequels, for example, mm. which let's face it, Lucas didn't really know he was getting that shafting in the in the eighties, mm. yeah, but he fucking aimed for it in the nineties. So many, okay, I, I, we were having this discussion off the air mm. a, a little while back, where I was like, I don't know if I actually like Star Wars or if I just like visual dictionaries and books that are cutaways <laughs> of vehicles. Yeah. Um, and those, the prequels had so many vehicles in each of them because it was yeah. like, well, it's a thing we can sell and it's a thing, you know, that, that, that expands the world. Yep. Whereas the sequel trilogy didn't have nearly as many. It was pure nostalgia bait. So it was like, do things that are the exact same as the old one with a paint job. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Star Wars is a fascinating thing because... I think so many people, when you think of Star Wars, you think of the spaceships out of things. You think, yes, you touched on the Millennium Falcon, you touched on the X-Wings, you touched yeah. on the Death Star, which is a spaceship, by the way. I know it's a space station, but it moves. <laughs> Proven on screen that it moves. Uh, you think of Star Destroyers and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But going back to like the speeder bikes, you think of the forest moon of Endor and them crashing mm. into trees and stuff. Yeah. Or even as m- recently as at the time of recording, the book of Boba Fett that's going on on Disney Plus at the moment. There's a bunch of speeder bikes and stuff. In yeah, because they're on Tatooine people, and people stuff. whinging about it. Are they Vespers or something like that. They're uh, basically, yeah. There are Vespers as well. Yes, mod moped stuff. There are full-on speeder bikes from like the Tuscans, and there's a biker gang who ride like speeder bike type things. Yes, and then there's a group called the Mods. Mm. Mm. They're called the Mods. Yes, they wow. are because they modify their like. Uh, oh. Cybernetic well, augmentation right. oh, kind of things, and they're all based. It's it's basically mods from the sixties. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And all the Americans are like, "What's a mod? Mm. Oh, it's a thing from British culture." And I'm like, 
British culture from 60 years ago, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, Quadrophenia is yeah. all about that mod culture Exactly, shit, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And they're literally, they look like little mopeds and vespers and stuff that just hover and stuff like Tons that. Tons of mirrors. And then you've also yeah. got like... <laughs> pretty much. And then you've also got like the Jarwin sand crawlers. Mm. Yeah. There's yeah, this yeah. fortress you mentioned, like it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a home, tank. it's a big tank thing, yeah. but they all live in that. Yeah. It's this big thing. And then you can go even further. There's... All sorts of man shit. Like each pod racer basically customizes their own mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pod racer in different ways. The little pod things, like yeah, again, that's for toys. But like, but it's also that's an a, that's of... world building. Yeah, like I was saying each person has their own t- slight twist on. Oh, this one's got their engines on either side. This one's got a circular thing. This one's mm-hmm. oh, that species does this thing, so he has his this way, so he can drive it with his so Bulba's weird foot oh, hand yeah. things, all that kind of stuff. As shit as the prequels are there's some fascinating stuff in there you're totally right tim that they really went like balls to the wall even all the like weird gungan stuff yeah they have submarines it considers how it looks different for different cultures yeah exactly and often in a very very racist way. mostly the <laughs> mostly yeah. very yeah. racist yeah i was having this conversation at work the other day we were talking about like joking one person at work hasn't really seen much star wars stuff and doesn't care but has seen the prequels she's young enough that she saw the prequels huh but didn't grow up watching the original trilogy, and her fa- one of her favourite characters is Jar Jar Binks. And we had this whole conversation. She's 27, and yeah, I was like, sure, eh, sure. not allowed. Um, and my colleague Mark, my co-host on Search with Kanda, was saying like, oh, they, they probably have some weird like racist name for their, you know, they're like, things that they ride, they call like a bongo or something. I'm like, that's the name of the submarine, Mark. And he's like, what? Like, you, know, you know the submarine mm-hmm. thing with like the yeah. fishy, the squid tail thing? That's called a Gungan Bongo. It's like, for fuck's sake. And (laughs) it's such a cool design. It has this weird kind of like mechanical meets biological kind of like swirly, corkscrewy weird thing that looks quite biological and quite sort of squiddy and stuff like that. Because again, you've got a great design team. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and there's so many things that go into, and, and then that translates into real world stuff because real world mechanics are based on actual animals and how biological yeah. things function the lift of a plane comes from us working out how the lift on a duck swings work as it runs yeah, along yeah. the water and takes off or yeah. whatever that side of the mechanical side of vehicles that looking at them as these expressions of the world around us is fascinating yeah again ornithopters in june perfect example they're big dragonflies big dragonflies for yeah. some reason yeah even that's not how that works but like, no yeah it, it's fascinating seeing all these you I, take that from how it is in the in the real world and then taking that to sci-fi and fantasy and all that kind of stuff and how that then says oh we're in the distant future this is how it's developed that already says that's kind of a statement already about the world around you and about yes how the society functions is what kind of vehicles do you have yeah how, think, how do these people get from point A to point B? That says something about them. Yeah, and I think you're entirely right, because I think it's, and this is a, a beautiful segue to, to, to vehicles as culture and cultural representation, because science fiction, fantasy, all that sort of stuff will effectively try and just mimic what we've already got in real life. As the same way in real life, technically... You want a what's car? In... You got a flying car. Mm, yeah. Chitty, chitty, fucking bang, bang. Yeah. It's just got some fucking, you know, flu Fold wings. out wings. Yeah, problem solved. That'll do it. But that's kind of the point. It'll just, in the same way that, that technology kind of mimics nature anyway. It's like, mm. oh, this, this skyscraper is the most amazing structure. Why is that? It's a honeycomb. It's like, oh, oh, you just copy bees. <laughs> right, okay, fair enough. It's like, yeah, well, why wouldn't we do anything else? Um, and that's kind of the interesting thing, because when you present these things, as, as Jack said, how do these people get around? How, historically speaking, how have, mm. the, how have we 
uh, as in Europeans, conquered places like ships, big fucking galleons. It's like, mm. well, guess what? We're going to represent that in space. Mm, exactly, yeah. And it's always the same sort of thing. I mean, in space, it's boats and submarines. Until you want little ships, then it's planes. Yeah. It's always like, oh, that's that doesn't make sense because those two worlds don't match. But you know what? Fuck yeah. it, I don't care. Yeah. But that's against Starship. But the point yeah. about vehicles, I was saying, is that, is that the idea that if you want to establish a culture, if you want to establish you're in somewhere different, if you want to say, look, I'm in a very alien place to me, this character, I'm out of sorts, mm. I don't know what's going on, you show fucking Darjeeling Limited with that kind of train. I, I was literally about to say, yeah. yeah. It's not even the science fiction-y side of things. No. You go like, oh, there's a rickshaw. You know you're probably not in Norwich. Yeah. Like, mm. yeah. Tuk-tuks. It's always like, tuk -tuk. Mm, exactly. Like, oh. Yeah. We're in East Asia, we're yeah. in India, mm, we're in yeah. that part of the world, straight away. Mm. And you have instant storytelling just because we are aware of the world around us, especially now in the information age. We know about different cultures growing up and in the internet and all that kind of stuff. And we've yeah. seen it in films and documentaries or whatever. And we're even in the news. You can instantly be like, you don't need the big typical like, now we're in Darjeeling, now we're in Delhi, now we're in Beijing or whatever. Yeah. It's like... You can just see, oh, there's a rickshaw well, there. We're yeah, probably in India. Clever, right? and you show the, the actual society culture, what people are eating, what people are doing. You can set the scene, or you can just tell people very obviously, and then cut to a fucking London bus, mm. like a big double red, a double decker red bus, or a London black cab. London taxi. call. Um, or like, we're in New York, here these black cows, like, like, these mip. yellow cabs all beeping each other. I am walking in. Exactly. Yeah. All that iconic shit you cannot escape because yeah. it's rooted in it. It's, it's like, we set this in LA. It's like, you most definitely haven't. Well, why would you say that? that I haven't seen a single car yet. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> walks anywhere in LA. It's a bus or a car. And let's face it. It's like, oh, it's, God. Like, it's like hell in Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not just about the vehicles themselves. It's about how the culture interacts with those vehicles Absolutely, and how yeah. it yes. how it treats them you know you can if you show a, a subway system in an american film you know you're pretty much in like one of four places because yes uh, as much as america valued the train during the height of the railroads in the kind of 19th century mm. 20th uh, early 20th century for, Tim. you know uh, they then you know motor companies basically paid to have the yeah. mo uh, train system demolished so that they could then have highways everywhere and sell more cars. Yep. Um, whereas mm. you come over to Europe and it's much more likely that characters will be taking a train to get from city to city. Yep. And then you go to Asia, you know, you go to India and you know it's the same because you know Britain was in charge. You need so trains. You, you need trains to make yourself a culture because you about, have it and have one. How about you build the railroads for yourselves? And yeah. We don't pay you to build those. Um, Our Britain. But also you have the way that you know you, the 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 way that they will pack people into and sometimes onto a train yes, in yes. a way that you never would in Europe. And, yeah. you know, you can just sort of... with very a, iconic. Yeah, with a single image, you can establish it. And then you go over to Japan, you've got the bullet train and the efficiency yeah. there. Yeah. And even though, obviously, they are a bullet train is not the kind of train that you will get in America or Europe mm. or, mm. you know, India and vice versa, you know, all the different models and stuff like that. But they are the same type of vehicle, but the way that they are treated in that culture is so different and it informs it, it both it informs you hey this is where you are if i show you a bullet train you're in japan but I, I, it also yeah. informs you about the culture and how you know the things that they value yes precisely and and it shows you how just through interior decoration stuff where you i mean uh the matrix resurrections is a very very recent example mm. is on a shinkansen oh sorry a shinkansen is a bullet train 
and they just step in from I think a hotel in uh, Paris and then poof, they're in Japan. It mm. does say it, and it, there's cherry blossoms and Mount Fuji. You can tell where you are, but yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's a high-speed train, so I just assume yes, it's it's Japan, and it's it's fascinating because again, history as well as culture comes into it. Because I mentioned about like the idea that Buster Keaton, mm. the general, him on the strapped to the front of that train, yes. sort of snowplow, yeah. iconic image, and the fact that the train very much did build America because it was how they fought the Civil War, how they got troops around, how everything was happening. Yeah, and as you say, the cars were like a car company's like fuck that, you can mm. destroy that, you can tear that all up. Thank you very much. But if you think about trains in Africa. There's a lot of positives to them in the sense of like, oh, it would transport people around. It would be a thing, connect things we never could before. It's like, well, we kind of just got it in there so we could get all your stuff out of there. Mm. That's what we're doing, really. That's, that, and it's, when you look at the, the, the means and how it's been used and how it's been repurposed and so on and so forth, it, it's fascinating. And the same thing, like, again, a ship, is it a thing of exploration? Is it a thing of like, we're going to go to sea around the world? Or mm. is it a slave ship? Is it mm. saying of complete and utter horror? And how you present that to and from and by different culture perspectives offers completely different looks at people and history and life, mm. which is cinema all over to me. We should also talk a little bit about the production and practicality side of yeah. things. Because, for example, notably, if you're shooting at sea, it's a fucking ball ache. It's a bastard. Um, and so, you know, how a film treats, you know, oh, okay, the character's got to take a boat trip. Yep. Like, oh, fucking really? Can we do it with stock footage? Can we just have a set built where that, you know, I, I, I'm so fascinated, like, how, I would love to know what the situation is in terms of, is there like a few airplane interior sets that are basically constantly in use in Hollywood and they mm. get redressed for different purposes, you know? Or Weirdly do... enough, I think the answer to your question, Tim, mm. is they used to be. Mm. That was the Hollywood system, the, the the studio system. Yeah, was you'd like you'd have a back lot that would have a giant pool, and that's where you do all your fucking Ben Hur shit mm. and the whales from Star Trek Four. Yeah, it's like here's a giant tank on the back back lot of Paramount, that kind of thing. And you'd have like maybe like an interior fuselage for a plane. However, that's just really fucking expensive to keep it there. Yeah, it's a lot of room, so it's cheaper just to hire a plane for a day and just mm. film it on a runway. And it's even cheaper now to build a rig or alternatively CGI the bastard. Yeah, uh, play, uh, boats. I, Planes, yes, frustrating, problematic. Um, we talked this before about uh, the Howard Hughes film, which I can always forget the name of. Uh, Devils something or other. Yeah. Devils or something like that. But the point is that, or, um, or something like uh, Top Gun, where it's like, is this going to look any good? Only the edit will tell, that sort of thing, uh, in terms of how you make it look fast and feel like it's going somewhere. Um, but at the same time... Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's interesting because the further you go... In time, the more things become period and or classic cars, whether they're good or not. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I'm doing a movie and it's set in the early 2000s, you can source those cars, you can source clothes off the rack. Problem mm. solved. Easy, easy, easy. You suddenly look like Fast and Furious. <laughs> Your film's set in the 60s? Yes. Right, okay. There's going to be a, not a limited number, but so mm. they're going to cost you a lot of money. What do you want? Are, you, are you having like crashes? Yes. Okay, so we're going to get these expensive, limited, <laughs> rare edition cars and crash them. And what they often do for that sort of stuff is build like fiberglass bodies or yeah. mm. that are fake thing that, kit model that looks like a sixties thing. Yeah. Is actually just a fucking Volvo underneath yeah. there. Yes. And the actual stunt drivers are just driving a completely separate car mm. with a different shell just slotted on top. You're yeah. like, see, it's the sixties. Mm. I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's not though, is it? <laughs> yeah. Because cars yeah. are, I mean, well, vehicles in general, they're not always built to last. And sometimes with a boat or a ship, sorry you will find amazing recreations. Mm. Like, that is astonishing. Other times you can do model work or CGI work now 
and then film interiors as a set mm. somewhere in the same way you do a spaceship basically mm. we touched on it in our season finale from the last season in speed mm. two yes they had a scale model of the front of that ship for mm. some reason yeah. <laughs> which is a fucking brilliant idea yeah don't know why you did it so you mm. could crash it into the land and all that kind of stuff into the dock yeah but like that that happens so often you get kind of that and i'll i'll touch on this with one of my picks later on mm. a very iconic boat ladies and gentlemen Ooh. there's a little tease for you for our picks later on we've got three each by the way i can guarantee mm. people are picking tons of boats in the heads and they're like oh oh that one, mm-hmm. that one yeah, yeah sure um but the fact that you will often get like stunt versions of the original vehicle you'll get the one thing that is the iconic thing yeah and there's a bunch of backup versions that oh when you see it drive through a window or, mm. you know, drive, go over this thing as a boat mm. or crash through this thing as a plane, that was plane number one. And then when it crashes into the ground, that's actually plane number three. Yeah. Mm. And the real version is plane number two that is in some museum somewhere for film and yeah. props and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it used to, it, I think it's less so now because of CGI, but you used to get those facts of like, oh, yeah, you know, we were filming the Blues Brothers and we destroyed 84 versions yes. of the Bluesmobile. And that was the world record for the most, most vehicles wrecked yeah. in yeah. one thing. Right? Which was yeah. broken by the Blues Brothers 2000, I think, by one car. I was I like, fuck it. you. But <laughs> you're right, it's the same, that's just filmmaking though. It's the same mm. for props, same for costumes, same for actors. Mm. We want the one that's going to cost the money in front of the camera and yeah. when something needs to happen to it, you don't use the fucking real sword, yeah. you use a rubber sword. Yeah. You don't Ooh, use shit. the priceless guitar in sometimes you do yeah talking of the kind of the practicality and stunt of stuff like that even just something as simple as filming a conversation in a car yeah it's like okay well how have you seen how big film cameras are yeah Yeah. big fucking things like how how are we doing that and and you go back to those kind of almost iconic because they now to us look so stupid oh. the kind of the back projection yeah. shots in the 50s yeah. and 60s where you're like yeah they're not really driving anywhere um and the start of amelie was she saying she likes watching the movies where there's two people in like a 1950s 1940s scene yeah talking to each other having a straight conversation then they look at the road yeah <laughs> never do um and and then you go you know you can get something as va- as advanced as the scene in children of men where it's that mm, one yeah. where they had to they literally choreograph everyone's movements because the camera is mounted on top of the car mm-hmm. and is spinning round, and you've got people like Julianne Moore and Clive Owen just like collapsing their chairs and laying backwards so the car the camera can move over them yeah. to yeah. continue the shot going and it's so absolutely cool. amazing. Yeah. Um yeah. and you know, and, and now we have CGI and stuff that can make the backgrounds look more or less you know, yeah. photo perfect and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but again, it's it's all that. And when you go for some, you know, low budget, there's people who are just like, okay, how the fuck are, you know, right, well, we can't ever shoot both of them in the car at the same time because yeah. I've got to sit here in the passenger seat with the camera, yeah. you know. And even then, there's the, the, the small practicalities of filmmaking. You'll notice the, the CGI, beautiful unseen CGI does mm. this really nicely. But there used to be a classic question of why are the windows always down? It's like, because we can't film the reflection of the fucking yeah. camera you yeah, idiot exactly so they film it that way oh it's convertible it. oh thank god yeah. <laughs> it down and then they cgi the windows back in basically yeah. yeah perfect example of that of it doesn't look like a vehicle but actually it is but in universe it's not but because of the practicalities of filmmaking yeah. it is is the fast five bank safe heist oh we've, yeah. t- we've touched on this on the so on before. that is not a a, a, a bank safe 
that is a shell of a bank safe over the top of a car. Yeah. And there is a stunt driver in there mm. driving that fucking thing down yeah. the road. Yeah. So that is a vehicle, even though it's not, because mm-hmm. it is just a box. It's supposed to be in universe. That's a box. Yes. But you can't drag something of that weight and scale mm. down a road attached to a car. No. So you actually had a guy in there steering it as yeah. they mm. went. And that is incredible filmmaking it's the best fast and furious movie for the record but like what an amazing idea what a cool thing to be like how the fuck are we gonna get this like it's like 15 foot by 15 foot Mm. massive indestructible bank safe down the road yeah dave (laughs) (laughs) uh you're the you're the lead stunt coordinator right do you think bill would drive a safe (laughs) i I mean i'll chuck an extra couple of quid at him if you like Let's see what Bill says. It's yeah. like, there's Bill driving this fucking safe. <laughs> it's, 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 it almost it's looks a tank. Like, it almost looks like sort of like when you take the shell off of it, like sort of like they've taken a VW camper van and yeah. like cut the back two thirds off <laughs> if memory serves. Yeah. I was going to do up last sort of two points before we get to our own picks. First is that we've been talking about the vehicles. We need to talk about the people who operate vehicles. And the second point is we talk about the vehicles that actually happen to be characters. So, First point, and I don't mean just like, oh, that's a really iconic thing. No, 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 that is alive. So, because um, <laughs> we just said a steed doesn't count, an amount doesn't count, but a living car is fine. Mm. So basically, if you think of something like um, the, the the operators, so you go like, oh, I want to have a plane in my movie. I want to have a helicopter. I want to have a fucking mm. submarine, a boat, car, whatever it is. You're going to need someone to operate that yep. shit. It's mm. not just enough to get the thing. The vehicle itself needs someone who is trained to operate it. And, they, they and that like, can get pretty fucking complex pretty quickly. Fucking yeah. helicopters in Mission Impossible doing barrel rolls, which is something yeah. they should not be designed to do. They're yeah. not designed to do. Helicopters barely function as it is. I hate yeah. helicopters. <laughs> They're terrifying. Stupid things. Um. So, yeah, un- unspoken, un- unrecognized individuals, like most of the mm. stunt industry and these things. Like yeah. Give them Oscars. I feel like I said this a couple of episodes ago, yeah. but... Give stunt people Oscars. They're yeah. incredible. Yeah. So if you're like, um, oh, we need to get this thing on set. People have to source these things. They have to find them. They have to find drivers as well for them. Mm-hmm. This is a whole army of production stuff that you never think about because someone in a script wrote, they take the train to here. It's like, right, yeah. are we shutting down an entire train line? Are we just buying off the cart? Is this going to be like a rig? <laughs> yeah. Is it source code? Are you just like... buying stock footage of just a yeah. train moving somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in source code, obviously stuff with is like on the station things, but it's like, well, we have just to build a train. We can't just realistically keep running on the train over and over and over. It's sliding doors is set on the underground so you have to get mm. that continuity of the underground over and over and over there's all yeah. these things to factor in isn't there a discontinued london underground yes. thing that is always used Into as film stuff yeah, yeah that that platform and that train is always used so, yeah. for that thing mm. and it's like disconnected from the rest of the underground so there's no chance that we're like <laughs> interrupt anybody's journeys and we're not shutting down a bunch of people on rush hour or anything like that yeah, exactly but it is literally an old part of the underground that is shut off from the rest of it and mm. they're like let's not destroy that Let's turn that into a yeah. set, basically. You can make so much money from doing that. Yeah, yeah. it's really clever. Another thing that, uh, another reason why Thor: The Dark World is uh, low oh. in the MCU rankings is because they have a bit where Thor is teleported onto the London Underground, mm, and yeah. he's, and they're like, "Oh, I need to get back to uh, here." He's got Greenwich. From, he needs to get to. Get... I want to say the financial district. Yeah, and, says, and two stops this way. And you're like, yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. Clearly not written by someone who's been on the London Underground. By two stops, do you mean two train changes away? Yeah. Because yeah, like, it's 15 stops, yeah. there's seven on the first train, then you change for three. Yeah. Two or three you got to Good luck not getting lost at bank. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You've got to spend 15 minutes you walking to, through bank. So when you're at bank, right? So you have, you have to go outside. Mm-hmm. Don't go through the ticket styles, but you have to go outside around. Mm. There's yep. another one, right? 
and then you're going down, no further Jack, down. Jack, Jack. I yeah. think you're mistaking the response, which is, fuck you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Do I look like a fucking map? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, that, and that's the thing. So you have to remember that it's not just the vehicle, it's also the operator. But then, as I say, Herbie, the fucking car from Inspector Gadget, that yeah. awful fucking film. The car... Or cat the, bus. Cat bus. There are some things that are mm. kind of alive that have their own personality that are a thing that's mm. iconically... All the things the in cars. The cars in cars and yeah. the planes in planes. Everything, yeah. Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime. <laughs> he's like... Yeah. He's, a ma- he's, a, he's, a, he's a sentient being first that happens to look a bit like our versions of vehicles because he contorts himself a certain way. Yeah. It's like I like go to a circus and say, oh, look, an elephant. No, 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 that's a person. They just happen to be twisting themselves to look like one. No, 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 that's an elephant. <laughs> and I'll be damned if I can't hunt it. Um, so there's a load of um, strange moments where you think, well, what about these ones? Do they mm. count, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you're inside Herbie... Are you inside Herbie? What's, are you... Is Herbie deriving some pleasure from that? Yeah, what's, what's happening? Is he going to digest you? Does Herbie eat? He eats petrol. I think he runs down and gets tired. Eat he gets cut in half and he still races somehow. There so you go. Fucking who mm. knows? Um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is alive, is it? Am I thinking more of Brum? It's just, it's just magical. It's just magic. That, yeah. Brum, that, Brum is go. alive. There we go. That's true. Brum is alive. That's not a film. That's TV. But, yeah. but I was going to say. Anybody that, outside of the UK has no idea what the fuck we're talking about. I mean, yeah. Brum's other game. Google Brum, you'll have a great time. Yeah, but. It's like then we start with the broomstick thing. You step into magic. You go into, mm. Mm, but is that the same thing? And you're like, mm. well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But it's one that we need to just acknowledge again. It's like the idea of cars is such a broken universe. As much as I love the idea of how much fucking sold toys, it's like everything here is based for cars. No, everything is for humans. Yes. And you have a minor consideration for these cars. Yeah. Why do these cars have seats? What is getting inside of these cars? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't need to make sense because it's for children, for fuck's yeah. sake. But you still go... Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting kind of crossover point because so many... When, when you have a film that focuses on a vehicle, yep. so, because we can get across so much of an individual's character through it, and, and we, we use them as both an expression of the individual and of the setting. Mm. So many times you, you hear people go like, oh, the, that car, that vehicle's got such personality, you know, whether it's whether it is a, an extension of the person or it's a setting and therefore it kind of has. Ford Mustang. Yeah. What a personality is that car. <laughs> it has its own character. And so yeah. you, there's so many examples of films where people are talking to their car, they're begging their car to keep going or whatever, and they are imbuing the car with almost personality and yes. and a kind of sentience to it. It's a projection of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Entirely, yeah. And then it's very easy to then cross over into like, ah, oh, but in Herbie, the car is actually alive. But yeah. it can only really communicate by like, you know, tooting and, and you know, wiggling its, you know. Uh, yeah, it opens its doors at weird times. Yes. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. He doesn't like you. Like, and then I don't give a shit. And then you go like, okay, well now it's Bumblebee and it can change the radio and then it yeah. can occasionally like transform into a robot and do stuff. Yeah. But it still can't talk. Sometimes uh, Transformers have big old dicks and big old balls. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? Uh and then you get something like cars where it's just like, oh well it's just it's it's a it's basically just a creature yes. that happens to look like a car, but is also definitely a car. Yeah. It's purely coincidental it looks this way. Yeah. And I think that's that's all kind of part of it, and and we haven't even touched on the idea of the so the, how it can establish a character's um, actually here's an experiment for you to before I say that the idea of establishing a character's personality immediately, and I can do this one way. If you see one or many people on a bike, a motorbike, 
it can instantly tell you everything about that character. Mm. Mostly that they're either a badass or in a gang. It's very <laughs> or rarely, both. Or both, or going through a, a crisis. Mm. Um, it's, is it midlife crisis or is he actually cool? Yeah, mm. because they're, it's again, it's like how we associate these things in real life is because of how we've seen it on film. Mm. And yet, if you switch that out and it's a vehicle that is essentially very close, mm -hmm. but you make it a moped and yeah. you go, oh no, this character's a dweeb. <laughs> this character's <laughs> unless fucking, it's Italy, then or a the mod. Yeah. yeah. This this character's Toby Maguire delivering pizzas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. Yes, entirely. Uh, the, the 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 fucking the gremlin in um uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist kind of thing. There's, there's yeah. an old battered car. You're like, oh, oh my that's, god, that's a Yugo. That's a Yugo. Yes, it is. What's the gremlin? And something else is in. There's a, the gremlin's yeah. been used in a few different films. Yeah. But they exactly certain cars that are like, why the hell are you driving this? Yeah. That's that, that's shameful. That's yeah. A, it's a point of embarrassment. Stuff like the uh the the principal's car in um Booksmart, the, the wherein go. it's an Uber. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he's got all the lights set up in it and all yeah, that kind of stuff yeah. to be like, look, I personality, five stars, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh or, or the way that um you can tell in uh collateral how Jamie Foxx's character keeps his clean oh, and yeah, pristine yeah. and he knows the roads perfectly and he's proud of his job and that yeah. whole thing means that one of the reasons why he's a good target for there's, that thing there's so much you can establish so much character with mm -hmm. just like is this person's car full of trash yep is it perfectly clean is it you know oh it's relatively clean but there's this one thing you know they've got their little hood ornament <laughs> thing that they go yeah. have got um the amount of times i've seen a car door it's a low shot car pulls up stops then the door opens and five like what five fifty beer cans fall cans, out. Yes, and it pans up a person's boots. The <sighs> yeah, the cigarette. It's like oh, yeah, I, I can think of like so many eighties and nineties movies have that. Yeah. Yes, as a description of like this person is a burnout. <laughs> oh my god! Or alternatively, the, the, a weird weird example: the start of both because it's mirroring the same thing. Breakfast Club and or Power Rangers, where a dad pulls up in a pickup truck saying. Son, you better get right. It's like, ah, a working class man. Yeah. And his son, who he's impressing his failed dreams upon. I know yeah. this because of his pickup. And it's like, yeah, it's it's nonsense, but it's also like it feels like it's a representative of people, a culture of things. Yeah. It's it's endless. Oh, and we haven't mentioned Batman has a load of them. <laughs> and also there's Batman. We could do an entire episode on just Batmobiles. Yeah. Not even talking on bat planes or the bat nope. or Bat bikes or anything like that. There are so many different Batmobiles. Yeah, fucking ridiculous. That say something about their Batman, their respective their Batman, Batman. Their time, mm. the industry, yeah. the everything. Yeah. yeah. You know something else that's true about Batman? I don't, Tim. Fucking he's, loves audiobooks. Doesn't he just? Yeah, got yeah. time on his hands. He's, yeah, exactly. All those stakeouts. He's not going to carry a book around with him, but he can get Alfred back at home to be like, okay, yeah, stream me some audiobooks. Dial it up on the back computer, Alfred, and send exactly. it over. yeah. And for that reason, Batman has an Audible account, and you can too. You don't have to be a millionaire you... to do this, I assume. No, no, you don't. You, you don't need anybody. to be a billionaire. You don't need to be Bruce Wayne. You don't even need to be Selena Kyle and oh. you know and Nick stuff to to fund your Audible habit. I mean, I've done that because we are offering you a free month on Audible.com. God damn! And a free book to boot. Whew. And we've been talking about vehicles. <laughs> transport transportation why don't you check out the audible original production 
of Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, oh nice. I wonder if it's got like a streetcar named Desire or a Haynes manual, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Jules Verne classic. Yeah, good job. Uh, with performances by, just mentioned him in our Patreon exclusive episode, oh. Toby Jones. Oh, yeah. As oh, Phineas Fogg. Great, great idea. Golden Globe, Emmy, and multiple BAFTA nominee. Mm. As well as George Blagden mm-hmm. uh, as uh, Passaportu, uh, who's been in uh, stuff like Black Mirror and Vikings, mm, yeah. and uh, Don Giray as Detective Fix, amongst others. Mm. So yeah, this is this is an audible, exclusive, original production, full of fantastic people. Got really good rating, and you could have it for free, or any other book that you like. I don't know if Batman's listened to this one, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and get a month's membership of Audible for free and a free audiobook of your choice. You can access a library that has thousands upon thousands of hours of audio content, audiobooks, podcasts, guided meditation, fitness. There's so much stuff on Audible. You, it is kind of mind-blowing how much content that there is available. Mm. Loads of stuff that's exclusive on there or original productions that are really high quality. They're always producing really, really great stuff. Yeah, those audio drama versions of things, like you said, with the multiple cast members and stuff, they often have like music and background sound effects and stuff. Even some of the Star Wars books I'm at, we've touched on Star Wars a couple of times already. Yes. They have such high production value. It's Mm. really kind of like a full-on kind of audible experience. Yeah. So yeah, take advantage Go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and get a month free and a free book on us, your boys at Sequelizers, and also Batman. Yeah. So let's dive into some picks, shall we, gentlemen? We highlight some of the finest and weirdest and most iconic vehicles from mm. throughout mm. the years of cinema. Matthew. Hello. I'll come to you first. You've seen, you've seen all the films. <laughs> you've seen all the vehicles. You've seen, yeah, you've seen all the films. You've, you've driven, driven all, all the vehicles. vehicles. <laughs> It is true. I have had cut a life of many, many adventures. So, um, when this subject came up, I was like, what are we going to talk about? Movie vehicles. There was one thing in my head. And we said, not spaceships. And I said, okay, fine, 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 fine. And then <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was one thing in my head. And then we said, no, Max. No, Max. And you're like, oh. Uh-uh. <laughs> and then there was one thing in my head. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's it. Because no matter how old I get, no matter how many different movies I see, no matter how many cool vehicles, like, that's so amazing. Well, that's a great design. The teenage boy in me fell in love with this thing to the degree that I want it, even though I think it definitely doesn't exist. Is it Herbie? Did you fall in love with Herbie? I fell in love with Herpes. Oh, (laughs) God. (laughs) No. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) No. And I fell in love with this thing. I've always, I've coveted it. Mm-hmm. I want a model of it. I want the real thing. And yet, it's a thing that I would absolutely detest having in real life. <laughs> that is the level of my fixation and fascination. It is design-wise, and just because of the association, fucking cool. It does a bit of a DeLorean in that it's only really in certain parts of this movie, but it is iconic in how it is presented. Mm. That's enough burying the lead and, and, and wanking it up and hyping. I'm talking about Canada's bike from Akira. Oh, yeah. And that bike doesn't actually have a name. It's just <laughs> Canada's, Canada's bike. bike. Yeah. And he, it's, I mean, he nicked it. It's not really even his bike. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, it's it, it's a anime, nineteen eighty eight Akira. We discussed it a few times on the on the show. We touched on that specific scene with the bike chase and yes. stuff in the opening sequences episode mm-hmm. we did previously. Yeah, it's it's got like a load of stuff in, in, the, in the, the the dialogue. It says electronic and controlled air brakes, two hundred horsepower. It does all these bits and pieces. That describes what it does, mm. but it doesn't actually matter. And then this is what we talked about earlier about the idea of association and character. The bike is associated with Canada and the gang. So obviously mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a rough, rowdy, very attractive mm-hmm. thing. And he nicked it. So it's mm-hmm. stolen property. So all very, mm-hmm. it's even more covetous and, and amazing. And noticeably nicer than anyone else's bike. <laughs> Extremely. It's like he's driving a Ferrari where everyone's walking around these sort of like, you know, regular Fiestas yeah. or something. But it's also a thing of like, Tetsuo wants to drive. Tetsuo also is obsessed with it. It's a point of obsession and, and, mm. and inferiority and all sorts of things that mm. feed into the characterization. Rivalry. So multi- and, yeah. Entirely. And multi-level thing working in that capacity. And the first thing, you know, Tetsuo's looking over it and thinks it's amazing and kind of does like, it doesn't say get out of the bike, basically, or get off it. He's like, do you think you can handle it? Because it's like, this bike is too much bike for you. Yeah. And the bike is like only the baddest, most amazing <laughs> motherfucker can drive. This. this bike is too big a penis for you. Yeah, this bike fucks. <laughs> um, and, and are you ready to get fucked by <laughs> this bike? Yeah, and I have genuinely adored it for like decades. Your entire and, life, basically. Yeah. By the and like. there is currently there are certainly so few versions of that thing in terms of like model kits or or replicas, or whatever. They've released one recently. The um, light up one. Yes. Oh, it's and so it costs cool. like seven hundred dollars. Yeah. Mm. Like, are you fucking insane? But also Have you seen like the really advanced Lego versions? Yeah. The, like seven hundred yeah, piece kit. I have. I've seen someone do like a kit version where they're driving around in like this sort of like somewhere mm. in America with it. And I'm like, it's just so everything like in, in like I know Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven is a broken and hideous game, mm-hmm. but I thought that that bike fits in there. It's yeah. such a it's such a thing that I would I mean my brother, um my middle brother Andrew. He, he has a bike life. He has a bike and he drives mm. his bike around. And I look ridiculous on a bike. I look less ridiculous on a horse, but I look quite I mean, ridic- yeah, that yeah. makes sense. We, we all, my brothers and I will ride, but we, Andrew, Andrew's the one who rides bikes. And he, he was sort of teaching me and showing me bits and stuff. And when we were kids, um, we would go to like these sort of course days. We'd go on like a quad bike or a dirt bike or that mm. kind of stuff. And you, you know, learn sort of um, uh, that, that kind of off-road adventuring kind of stuff. Uh, in addition to BMXs and everything else, that kind of thing, just as an experience. And I've never really had the confidence with balance. Mm. I could functionally do it, but I'd be that, like, it'd be wasted on me. I'd be yeah. going no more than 33 miles an hour. You, you, <laughs> you wouldn't try and do the iconic slide Freak. in it because you'd be too terrified you'd fall over. Very much so. And yeah. I, t- Tim, that's I would how fall that slide over. works. <laughs> yeah. And that slide is fucking iconic. So have you have you seen the GIF of? I was yeah. just about to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah all, all the, the homages been rep- to replicated. Yeah. 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 For those who don't know, there's a, a beautiful scene of animation where the bike slides around. It's because it's animation. It slides away from the shot perfectly as, as the bike is sort of coming to a, a braking and careening to a stop, and it goes away from the camera. And the tail lights are trailing, and there's the sort of reflection of the glass goggles, and it's it's, it's amazing. And the amount of people who have replicated that shot mm. because it is so. It's so dynamic, and so, I mean the camera isn't moving, but everything's moving so perfectly. So yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's glorious. So it couldn't not be my first. And if if I only had one pick, I mean I never have one pick, you know. <laughs> but if I had one pick, that would be the thing. And it was the first thing I wrote down. The first like, well, nothing can change. And I also yeah. then said, hmm, I might not do anything else that needs to go on the road. It's like no cars. And it's like 
I what, can't. What not... can com- compete? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's winner stays on. It's like, what about the Batmobile? What about fucking Canada's bike? <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. Like, what about this? No, what about. I just told you, what about Canada's bike? Um, even if you stem into television, um, Canada's bike, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's important to me. It's it's such an iconic thing. It's gloriously designed. It's never been best or beaten. And the thing is, with with regards to the bike itself, as I say, it's it says so much about character and status and envy and all these things. And yet, it's only really seen at the start and the end of the movie. Mm. It's got so little screen time, but it means oh, it's so it's so important, it's so iconic, and so awesome. To put it into perspective, there is a two minute video on YouTube called. Three decades of Akira slide homages. Yeah. <laughs> Just type in Akira bike slide mm. into YouTube, and it is everything from other anime like Doraemon, mm. classic stuff like that, yep. through to Yu Gi Oh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yep. Batman the animated series. Mm. If there is an animated thing that has happened yep. since 1988, and there is the capacity to include motorbikes, some of them. Aren't even motorbikes. Mm. Yeah. There's one from Adventure Time where Jake slides like that in dog form and like slides as a dog and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's iconic beyond iconic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's older than Jack. (laughs) It is. Yeah. Yeah. But not as old as Tim or myself, which means we're allowed to ride it. Um, (laughs) That's not how that works. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. Anyway, so that's one that, that that's my first one. That was gonna, always going to be the top of my list. It, the, these are not, aren't ordered or numbered, but that would be it, just mm. in a, in a heartbeat. Tim, mm-hmm. what's uh, what's your first vehicle? Uh, mine is a vehicle that would crush Canada's bike under <laughs> its powerful wheels. Mm. Thing, I can't be insulted by that because by the end of Akira, that bike is fucked up. Yes, yeah. it is. And in contrast to Canada's bike, this vehicle is basically the entire film is based around it. Yep. I've gone for the war rig from Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, see, this is interesting. Partly because Mad Max has so many iconic and interesting cars. Yeah. Each film has its own set of really interesting mm. cars and, and vehicles in general. Mm. The Interceptor was nearly on my list. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because uh, I assume from specifically the second film. Yes. Well, yeah, it's it's peak yeah. of badass. Yes. Yeah. Road Warrior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas in Fury Road, because there's so much going on. There are so many vehicles you could say anything. The yeah. fucking the doof yeah. vehicle thingy with the with the, the drums. Warrior. Yeah. 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 The, there, there's yeah. so much there. Yeah. So yeah, the war rig specifically. The war rig specifically. Because uh, because the film is essentially set on it. It, it is the moving set for the film. Um because it's such a large vehicle, yep. there's so many different options for how they shoot it. You know the the different parts of it. You have the wives like crawling through the different compartments yeah. of it. You have the moment with uh, Nux when uh, he's at the back, and um, uh, one of the wives, the Riley Keogh's character, whose name I can't remember, because oh, yeah. um, they've all got very weird names. Um, yes. uh, and they they're having this kind of moment, and it's in this weird like it's like a VW shell, uh, like VW Beetle shell that's like attached to the back. And they're having this kind of little intimate moment in the in the kind of night time. And then you have the action sequences where it's all focused up in the cabin. It's such an amazing use of a vehicle on film because all those things we were talking about of both character and setting it is the perfect blend of those. Yeah. Because there's so much storytelling that is done with that war. I mean, throughout the production design for Mad Max Fury Road is insane. But even just taking that war rig by itself. Stuff like the fact that Immortan Joe's symbol 
is stamped on the metal of the ceiling in this repeating pattern because everything has to be marked as his. Yep. You have to, you know, that you are in a thing that is owned by a Morton Joe. All branded. Yep. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Literally branded. There's stuff like that, the dagger that is hidden in. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The gear shift. The gear shift stick. Yeah. stick. The, the fact that it's got that little, like, sequence that Furiosa has done of, like, dead man switches so you can only drive 50 yards yep. before it breaks down unless you know what you're doing. All these things, that, the, the gun that is hidden in a little crushable skull on the outside because they're aware that at some point they might get, mm-hmm. like, hijacked mm-hmm. and need to have a, 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 a weapon on the outside that nobody else knows is there. All this conveys so much about both the setting and the characters because it you know it shows furiosa as this capable person as this she has made this vehicle hers which a bit like max's interceptor it tells you that in this world there is this symbiotic relationship between driver and vehicle Mm. that you you need to know your vehicle inside and out you need to not only is it yours? You need to make it so no one else can drive it. No one else knows this thing like I do. And the fact that Max is then trusted to drive it is such an important step. And it shows the evolving relationship between them and that they start to, that they're getting to know each other. And just the, you know, stuff like them spitting the petrol into the the big engine that's, you know, the engine block that's jutting up uh, from the front, just showing this, such a close relationship in this culture between vehicle and person. It's because outside of it, you die, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on it being a moving set there, Tim, and I think that's a perfect description of it. Because of the way George Miller made Fury Road, it is so practical mm. and a mix of CGI when the big explosions and the, you know, the, yeah. the war boys are coming in with the exploding spears yeah. and all that stuff. That is a combination of wire work and real car explosions and CGI all perfectly blended together in this immaculate special effects featured car mayhem Mm. monstrosity that is that scene. And even blowing up the actual war rig that they do towards the end to close off the canyon and all that kind Mm. of stuff. They actually did that. Yeah. They actually blew up the actual war rig and just the whole thing fucking exploded. Mm. And it's just commitment to that kind of thing where, like you said, it's such a central part of that film and the characters' lives and it's what's keeping them alive in this fucking wasteland of a desert. Yeah. Like Max says at the beginning, the world is blood and dirt and all mm, that kind of stuff. Yeah, like yeah. there is nothing left here. The world is fucked and we live on bullets and petrol and that's mm. it, basically. Oh, wait, there's water over there. Oh my god, it's <laughs> a huge fucking deal. And water is like the most Im- miraculous thing in this world. Yeah. Mm. And they live in these grimy, horrible, fucking greasy, just hot, noisy, hot, noisy things yeah. churning through a fucking desert. Imagine trying to drive that thing through a desert. Mm. Basically impossible. The fact that, you know, they get stuck and they have the little runners under the yeah. under the wheels and all and that the, kind of the, stuff. The plow that can go down and the kick plow up thing all the kicks up all the yeah. sand. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. fact that that is a big actual practical thing that real people welded together from mm. bits <laughs> of this car and the back of a semi truck from over there that's got extra six wheels on the side, and then mm. let's put some uh, we need some polystyrene skulls on the front, yeah, <laughs> and then these big spikes at the back, and yeah, there's such attention to detail there that is so built into that world and built into just the 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 care and the craft that goes into this stuff that just blows my mind. Again, we are not car people. I know basically yeah. <laughs> nothing about 
how cars work, how they're built, all that kind of stuff, apart from the obvious stuff that everyone mm. knows. But the fact that you can build something that big and that cool, that is not cool, it's just a hodgepodge of bits and pieces that mm. in the universe they have just built to be survivable, basically, yeah. and indestructible as possible through what the characters go through and throughout the film, it becomes iconic, it becomes epic, and it's like, that's just a bunch of car parts basically <laughs> stapled together, but it's so cool and mm. so integral to that film. Yeah, and that physicality to it is yeah. so important because it's it's not just a vehicle that you drive in, it is a vehicle that is clambered over and through and across and that you have fights on top of and all that stuff. And that become the, the just the very nature of how you move around it is part of the plot because you have the the Angared cutting her foot and then slipping as she's climbing as she when she's got the door opened and then she's yeah, kind yeah. of climbing back and then slips like there's just so much storytelling that is done with it that to me it ju- it just stood out immediately as as one that I wanted to highlight because a I fucking love that film it's so <laughs> good um but the the detail the physicality of it the way that it's used in so many different ways, the way that it means different things to different characters and ch- and that changes across the course of the film where it goes from being this, this thing that's just kind of almost like just, pra- again, practicality. This is, this is the best way to smuggle these women out. This is just an avenue to get to the green place. And then it becomes more than that over the course of the journey. It becomes, okay, well, we fucking bled for this thing now. This is, this is something that we value and then when they turn around and come back it, it becomes this kind of symbol of reclaiming mm. what it was a Morton Joe's and it's like now now this is fucking ours and we're going to go back and we're going to do the same to the Citadel. Which again is a, a beautiful projection and extension of and representation of Charlie Theron's character. Mm. The idea that it's like this is her. She is a cobbled together, broken, battered bruised thing yeah. who is property who is trying to just get the right thing done yeah yeah and it's through her blood sweat and tears and sheer willpower that it's getting accomplished basically yeah and just stuff like the the steering wheel where it's got that skull on it that's like i think it's kind of like wrapped in wire it's this amazing detailed thing and then halfway through the film they get rid of that and it's just uh like a wrench on the the direct mm-hmm. like kind of steering column that they have to steer with uh, it, amazing yeah and that's when you know you've hit something you really love where you can just say, I could talk about this for hours. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, let's go for your first pick. I'm going to venture into the sea, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh. Take us away from Ooh. Neo-Tokyo and Australia, I guess. <laughs> 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 Out into the seas in the Orca from, uh, from Jaws. Mm. Calling all the way back to episode one of <laughs> Sequelizers. <laughs> Way, way, way back when we fixed Jaws 2, of course. And to me, it's one of, uh, maybe along with like the Titanic, which is kind of the obvious one, to me is one of the iconic boats in all of cinematic history. When I think of a boat on on screen, I think of Bruce, the big mechanical shark, Mm. coming up and biting him in half, Mm. and that like giant shark hanging off the back of this fishing boat that looks like it is barely functioning and by that point it's mm. fucking sinking and there's it... there's something so amazing about a vehicle that is slowly falls apart yeah over the course of a film there's yep. th- there's something beautiful about that and the orca is one of the best examples yeah it's 
it's the Ahab mindset of like, you are going to destroy us and everything in your weird pursuit and your quest. Um, mm. The war rig, Canada's bike, mm. the orca. Don't end fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> All of them are smashed up and destroyed. Mm, and yeah. you can get like the final, sh- the final shot into the air tank from the top of a sinking mast. Just like the final last <laughs> grasp of hope against this indestructible force of nature that is the shark from Jaws. Mm. And yeah, it's just this this fantastic thing that it starts off as like, oh, it's a fishing boat. Like it's it's meant to catch sharks and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what this thing is built to do. But the fact that we're dealing with something on another level, this super hyper aggressive gigantic shark that just tears through everything else in the film basically and eventually does end up destroying the orca as we know it it's a brilliant piece of storytelling to have like you know you've got you've got brody you've got hooper and quint the yes played mm. by robert shaw is amazing in this like oh just don't give a fuck do i have to help these guys out kind of like yeah i mean you could yeah you can use my boat i suppose well it's also the fact that can we talk about the shorthand uh Big truck is big, scary. Okay, that's a dangerous thing. Bike is fast. Ooh, only some people can drive this bike because you have to have the balance. You'd, you'd fall off. Boat. I don't know what a regular fishing boat looks like. Um, but when you say, you need this kind of mechanical cage going to the water, that kind of thing. <laughs> all this sort of stuff. It's like, okay, now I understand how this has been sort of customized. It's a small thing, but it's a thing they bond together. And these three people don't really get on. They're definitely no, circumstance, no. Yeah. but they have commonality on the boat. They share... That that classic um, uh, seaman style. Oh, sorry, seamanship. They share um, seaman. Yeah, um, uh, a bonding of like, well, there's nowhere to go. There's mm. you, you can't leave the boat. You just have to talk to me. That that sort of isolation, that confrontation, mm. that 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 closeness, and that isolation in general is just yeah. Because yeah. there's nothing. There's also nothing around you to be like yeah. Ah, oh, the changing landscape of. The, the sea the sea which drives you fucking mad except yeah. also there's a killer thing in the sea yeah so yeah and obviously and and, and as well um as much as tim and my ones have really good um character parallels as this one is as well and setting as this one does as well and design this one isn't very cool design but it's no iconic not design. at all yeah because of association but yours has one of the most iconic movie quotes about it yeah we're gonna need a bigger boat it's, it's, it's just yeah so <laughs> iconic and so legendary and the fact that well, to to spin into like the behind the scenes stuff and talk about so they had a fully functioning actual orca that was a legit fishing boat, mm-hmm. and then they had essentially like a non functioning replica of it that did all the sinking and all the the shark stuff basically. Yes. When they're actually on a fishing boat and you don't see any like close ups or anything like that, that is a real boat that they're going around and that they actually mm-hmm. purchased mm-hmm. for the film and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as it starts sinking and breaking and all that kind of stuff, they have this full-size replica, kind of similar to what we're touching on with Speed 2, as I touched on earlier. You get this amazing attention to detail of like, oh, that's broken here, so now that's broken here. And it was quite a troubled uh, production. Oh yeah. (laughs) Again, as we touched on in episode one of Sequelizers, all the way back in 2015, we talk about how like those... Everything that could have possibly gone wrong on the set of Jaws pretty much went wrong. Everybody fucking hated each other. Everything broke. Cameras were breaking down. People were getting injured. All this kind of stuff. The fucking shark barely moved at times. And then when it did move, 
it hurt somebody and accidentally bit somebody <laughs> and all this kind of yeah. shit. When you're filming outside, you get the weather. When you're filming outside on the water, you get so many more problems. Yeah, because so many people usually get away with like, oh, we're not filming on the water. It's just a big pool in a car park somewhere. Yeah. People just do it on a parking lot and it's just this raised thing. So all you can see around you is water because we've just worried about that. It's like the 70s mate they just filmed on actual water yeah. it's not like life of pi where you can do it really convincingly with cgi yeah exactly it's like well what are you gonna do i guess we'll just also it's a small budget shoot i guess we'll just push a boat out into the water yeah uh, okay i think you know in terms of character and storytelling is a really fascinating thing with the orca as well which is at the start of the film but well, not the start of the film because they don't get on the boat till halfway through the film yeah when they get on the boat it's quint's boat and then there's all of Hooper's equipment loaded up on it. And you can yeah. kind of tell the difference because Quince is just that. I am an old, you know, old man seaman. of the sea, old seaman. Crusty old seaman. Um, old sea dog. Yeah. And, and it's just, I'm very grizzled and I just go out and I hunt these big fish. And then Hooper is like, I study everything. I'm the person who's brought the cage and all this kind of stuff. And then over the course of the film, a lot of that stuff gets destroyed, yep. wrecked in various ways. And by the end of the film, it doesn't, like, you can't tell what belongs to who anymore because yes. they've bonded slash died and it just be, it just becomes the orca and it's all you know it's all one piece rather than yes oh this you know there's this division between what belongs to hooper and what become belongs to quint it's just no it's all wrecked it's all been fucking ruined by this shark mm. and you've just got brody on the fucking uh the top of the mast <laughs> top of the mast smile you son of a <laughs> <laughs> yeah so good yeah. unfortunately from behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff the orca didn't survive no, oh, I wouldn't be surprised at it, all. it's heartbreaking so an interview with the production designer from jaws joe alves he talks about how the orca 2 which was the non-functioning one that was basically the set didn't have a motor didn't have anything but still had to be in the real sea so it would be lined up next to the real orca mm -hmm. and then whatever they changed on one they had to change on another they basically had, as you mentioned to him, all the equipment and stuff was basically being duplicated across both sides and all that kind of stuff. And when it came for the big moment, when Orca 2 sinks, it sank too well and took two cameras with it. And they were like, oh, no, fuck. Oh, it's gone. Nope, shit. And they were like tens of thousands of dollars in 1970s money. Yeah. Massive, like, Panavision big thing. And so we're like, yeah, that, that, that. And it, and it actually sunk. And they were like, well, shit. I guess we'll come back to that later. And I believe that uh, it was then um, eventually brought back up and towed away and all this kind of stuff. And Spielberg sold it to the Universal Studios like lot kind of thing, the big like presentation yeah. thing that they have. Uh, then I think he bought it back or one of the other members bought it back from them to kind of have their own memorial to it or whatever. <laughs> and then... From, I, I get a bit confused about how many times it goes back and forth, but it was just like Spielberg went to visit it at the lot one day and it was just gone. And somebody was like, oh, yeah, we had to clear out some space. And he was like, what? Yeah. Why would you do that? And there are rumors of it like, oh, it was, it was like sawn in half and because they couldn't fit it in a particular hangar or something. They cut it in half and then realized once they cut it in half, they couldn't keep it anymore. And it's like, that's like a really important piece of film history, you maniacs. Yep. Oh, yeah. And like we said, they blew up real war rigs. They actually sang a ship here. Like, 
it, it's amazing how many of these vehicles are so iconic. And then it's just like, I mean, yeah, it was just, you know, it sank, it broke, whatever. It's ended up in a big pile burnt or trash somewhere. Yep. Heart, yep. It's heartbreaking. Well, it's, it's expen- <laughs> As I said before, the fuselage of a plane, it's expensive to keep the shit lying around. And then, unless it goes into an actual museum like the Smithsonian or like the Museum of Moving Images or something like that, it's like, well, sorry, is it important? It's like, yeah, it was. It's like, well, you should have got on with things sooner. I'm not, not advocating that stuff. I'm just saying that's how these things end up being scrapped, unfortunately, because they're fucking huge. Also, an iconic ride. Uh, Universal Oh, Studios. yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep, a yeah. lot of fire. Um, I've been on the ride. It's good. You know, is there about? anything you haven't been on, Matthew? Jesus Christ. Your mum! No, <laughs> <laughs> Jill Chambers is a saint you live for life. Yeah, that's why I said I haven't been on it. Exactly. Um, no, it, it, the, the thing that makes uh, Jaws uh, an experience, shall we say, at the Universal Studios is when you go there and someone say, Oh, Sugoi! Because you're in Japan <laughs> and the entire story's in Japanese. I don't remember what the word for shark is in Japanese. Uh, Shaku? No, I felt like they have their own name for it, <laughs> but maybe. Um, so yeah, it was just a case of like, oh, oh, this is a different experience, but um, it's a cool ride. So Matthew, background to you, sir. Let's stay in the sea. Jack. Oh, let's stay. There's, in the there's sea. a transition. There's yeah. a segue for you. Not literally a segue. No, no, the segue underwater. We're not doing Paul Blart ball cop for fuck's, fuck's sake. sake. The most iconic uh, segue in cinema. <laughs> um, no, the Krasnir Oktabre. Or October, depending on which part of uh, Russia. Oh, God, Matt's doing all those wanky fucking Russian films again or something. Yes, and no. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about submarines. Um, but in an American movie. Mm. Uh, the Hunt for Red October. Oh, Hunt for the Red October. What a movie. Yeah, I, I genuinely loved Hunt for Red October. Uh, 1984 uh, was the book, 1990 is the film. Um, it's a classic sort of Cold War spy thing about two, well, one Russian submarine captain who's taking a very, very impressive weapon of war that would give Russia such an advantage that it would end everything. Because it's what's called a, a caterpillar drive. And the idea is it, it means they can activate it and the submarine is invisible to sonar. So this thing that's going, dum, 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 being the, you know, the sound of the, uh, the, the, the engine whirring, they had this I don't know, it's a hydromagnetic, some fucking thing that makes it work. I can't remember the Magneto hydrodynamic is Thank how they describe it in the film. Yeah. Which is not a thing, not I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It means it's powered by Magneto. Yes. Like, that is a thing, but that's not how the actual submarine works. <laughs> yeah. So it closes some doors and it runs silent, basically, and you can't catch it. And the thing about the submarines is once they're gone, they're gone. And then it can literally just dock off the shore of America and drop a nuke on Washington. And you wouldn't even know it was there, that kind of thing. It's like, that is the most dangerous thing ever. And the story is about the captain saying, I'm going to, def- to defect the Americans. And I told the Russians I was doing it. So all the Russians are hunting after them. And the Americans are thinking, what the fuck is this random boat that's going to be around? And there's one analyst played by Alec Baldwin. It's a really cool thriller. And I absolutely adore it. And John McTiernan is a master of that sort of stuff. And it's got that great, tense energy to the whole thing. Every fucker's in it. It's wonderful. Now, why have I picked the Red October as, a, as my thing i think it's to to, to to cap off what you guys were mentioning earlier about certain things about the 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 vessel or the vehicle as a location because it's a moving location i think this set. epitomizes it as the iconic setting it right? very much is yeah. mm. and it's also a character and a presence and a threat so when Oct- the red october is first presented it's through a lot of miscommunication and and questioning motives so as the audience you are shown through the superior, the, the, the superior officers, the officers of the boat saying, this is what we're doing. I was like, 
And how do we get all the men off the boat? They're not all going to want to defect to America. Just us. We mm. have our plan. How do we get them off it? I've got a plan for that. Don't worry. And then on the other side is the Americans saying there's a ship and it's gone missing. Right. Because it's all about spies and mm. shit like that. It's, it's Cold War tension. Exactly. Real James Bond shit. Except rather than the guy going around sleeping and finding, sleeping with women and finding information, it's the people feeding that information to analysts and what do they do with that stuff. And they're just trying to figure out each other's methods and it's trying to, you got the, I think it's the Dallas is the American boat that's going after them. It's like, I have to convince you to help me get to them. It's like, we're at a, a state of war, technically, mm. or sort of in the Cold War. I, I legally, we can't do that. And the way you see the Dallas and how it looks and the sort of close quarters of it all, and then you see a very un-Russian submarine and it is a filmic Russian submarine. A real Russian submarine wouldn't look like this. Mm. This is lavish and big and has underlit sort of like, you know, um, threatening, menacing lights. And uh, the captain's cabin is huge. And all this stuff is endless. And it has that element of like that Soviet, uh, Soviet excellence and giant ship, mm. and make, you know, the, the, the Soviet, palace of the Soviets <laughs> kind of thing. But it's filmed through the through the lens or the gaze of American opulence. Mm. That's what we see as a threat because that's what we would make ourselves. Yeah, kind of, it's like how do you make a Death Star submarine? Yeah, <laughs> you do this. Is that, that this enormous, enormous fucking bridge? And it's like that's not. Oh yeah, practical. yeah, notoriously claustrophobic things. Submarine. Yeah, yeah. World War II. I've been. I okay. I've been in a World War II submarine. Um, but it was dry dock, so it wasn't like a, a you know didn't go into water. But it was a it was in Germany and. Um, it was fascinating how small and streamlined those U-boats. And you're are. tall. Yes, I had a problem. <laughs> um, it was actually it was effectively a very small, very narrow corridor, and all the Germans say these little slats is the, the that there would be the captain's bunk, and the mm. rest would be you'd be just on the deck doing stuff. Yeah, and you know you'd maybe sleep on the floor if you had to do that kind of thing because it was a tiny, tiny thing. Obviously, a larger vessels, etc. But mm. submarines are designed for every single space. Yeah, is vitally important. Yeah, so to have a really open, lavish, thing, especially <laughs> in a Soviet thing, which is very, very functional usually, rather than yeah, for, for design purposes. You feel like they, if they could have, they would have made it like somehow like brutalist architecture submarine. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this a lot, lot of concrete underwater here. <laughs> yeah. This thing looks like it's, it's in uh, in Tron Legacy, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> dark and neon and interesting, but. Yeah, uh, ridiculous. But it is beautiful in how it's designed. It's terrifying in how it's presented in the sea. The technology is explained perfectly enough that if you don't know, you know the threat because of how they're conveying on their faces. Mm. You know the intent from all sides. You see the other versions of the boat, one um, captained by um, Tupolev, who is uh, uh, Stalin Skarsgård's character, and you've got Scott Glenn in the other boat, and the language barrier. That's just the film in general, but the, but the way the, the ship is presented, mm. every time someone sees, like James L. Jones sees a like a photograph, that's a big son of a bitch. <laughs> you don't know shit about submarines, but you know these people do, and what yeah. they're telling you is that it's terrifying. Mm. And more importantly, as an American viewer in the, in the 90s when the film came out, or a British, the same sort of mm. beers, out at the end of the Cold War, you get this whole, Christ, they could have this. And they mm -hmm. could be, they could be here, and you wouldn't know mm -hmm. it. And it's like you could literally. There's a thing Sean Connery says: "We all park up the uh, uh, the coast of uh, New York and listen to that rock and roll and all that <laughs> bullshit." And it's just the idea that it is. It's it does so much as a thing. It's a vehicle. It's a set. It's a character. It's a status symbol. It's a design, and it's an intent, and it's a threat. There's so much of what it is carrying with mm. it, and it's also really sleekly designed and populated with some fucking amazing actors. Mm. 
No wonder everyone's hunting for it. Oh, exactly. I've actually got a quote here from the production designer Terence Marsh, an interview with uh, Entertain- oh, yeah. Entertainment Weekly from a little while ago. Um, they went and had a look at two U.S. subs, so a Los Angeles class, which is what the Dallas is, yes, yes, yes. and a larger Ohio class. Um, and apparently, looking at those two was enough to convince Marsh that some alterations were going to be necessary for Red October. It turns out the inside of a modern sub looks more like something out of a World War II picture. Yep. There you go, cluttered greasy designed more for action and access than actually showing and this is the quote from marsh it didn't look 1980s high tech enough and what looks right to the audience is right that's what we always say in the movie Mm -hmm. business Mm -hmm. and if it doesn't look right to the audience it isn't right yes and it's again it's that attention to detail it's that kind of it doesn't necessarily have to be accurate we we touched on master and commander earlier like that was gonna say it's complete nonsense fictional story but the attention to detail to tell the story of that boat and those characters Mm -hmm. on that boat that is not a real submarine the red october is a sort of amalgamation of a few different types of things that could have possibly existed it's like an engine type from this thing and it's the the typhoon class as they keep calling it nuclear powered submarine exactly it's all these various different things that are real things were never actually combined into an actual submarine called the Red October. Unlike the Orca, which is literally just an old lobster trawler, basically. Yeah, yeah. This is a kind of a fictionalized thing, but the fact that they cared so much about what it looked like, specifically what it looks like to the audience. And yeah. you could tell a, you know, historically accurate, correct thing of a submarine, and you'd have six foot three Sean Connery bumping his head all <laughs> over the place, and James L. Jones tripping over like those the bottoms of the doors that are half a foot off the ground and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that they crafted it, like you said, to be this kind of almost luxurious, lavish, high tech. And yet still menacing. And still menacing. Yeah. It's got that Cold War Soviet-y intimidation factor to it. Because the primary audience is Americans. And if they see their own boats as these realistic pipe running up and down the wall sort of thing, like you have a small thing where the sonar crews sit and, you know, it's a whale, Beaumont, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you see this huge, dark, monstrous, terrifying beast in the ocean. Mm. Suddenly it's not... You don't have to know shit about submarines. So that looks like it's from the fucking future, and we are fucked. Mm. It's always hilarious in the X-Men, both the comics and the films, because mm-hmm. they have the Blackbird jet, do, which yeah. was originally meant to be the SR-71 Blackbird, which is yeah. a real supersonic bomber that the, the US military has. A Decepticon. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fuck that movie. But in real life, the Blackbird has like two seats, is incredibly cramped. Yeah. Like you are it's tiny. And then in X-Men comics it's like a passenger jet basically. Yeah, and you need all the X-Men to hang out and discuss yeah. the upcoming mission in the it's back. Big and stuff, it's because right? it's for story stuff though. It's because yeah. there's an engine in it, you yeah. dickhead. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and to kind of cut things off, I'll go for another quote from Marsh here. Mm-hmm. Uh talking about creating the look of the Red October and inspiring from taking inspiration from a real Soviet sub, the Konovalev. Yep. Um, called for a bit of guesswork. Basically, we had no invitations to visit the Russians. <laughs> but we had Who'd have thought? Yeah. Exactly. The, but we had references. The, the the Berlin Wall had only just come down at this point, I think. Yeah. yeah. During filming. We knew we couldn't be far wrong if we based our design on common knowledge and then added our own touches of, shall we say, evil empire. <laughs> like a black and chrome colour scheme. That yeah. really added the flair we needed. And I think that kind of sums it up, right? You take yep. this almost like cartoonish, oh, the Soviets are evil. They mm. must be evil kind of thing. 
and you spin it on that like well this is what the audience want to see from it and mm. it's based on real parts of real subs and taking inspiration from fictional things and real mm. things and mushing it all together to make this really captivating interesting mm. thing that looks amazing on camera we, all the time basically from every angle yeah. we said earlier at almost every iteration of the batmobile no matter how cool it gets is one of the most impractical fucking vehicles yeah. ever. It, even I was like, well, the tumbler can work, but it's shut the fuck up. It yeah. is a dumb, <laughs> dumb vehicle. And yet, all cool as shit. Yeah. That's all that matters. Speaking of cool as shit. Hey, Tim. Hey. What's your second pick? I'm also going to keep us in the ocean. Oh, mm. look at us. Um, Who'd have thought it, huh? Look at us. Look, look at us. us. Look at us. Who'd have thought? Huh? Not me. Um, very different to the October. Closer to the Orca. Mm. Yes. But very different in tone. <laughs> yes, very. Uh, my second pick is the Bellafonte from the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Th this just reaffirms Tim loves a cross-section. I do fucking love it. <laughs> well, so, th in fact, the, in the initial impetus for the film was Wes Anderson having this vision in his mind of a cross-section of a ship yeah, yeah. and filming it. And I... I I s love that s shot so much, or several shots they have of just the yeah, the yeah. cross section um, set, which was a practical build. Mm. It was a giant model. It was uh, 150 feet long and 40 feet high. Crazy. Yeah, you know, one of those minis that they have. You, we yeah. build miniatures and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the it was, biggies as they call. Yeah, it was a it was a practical set that they could move around. But Amazing. there was a ship cut in half. Amazing. Um, and you know that that you have the full workings of the thing and you know the the various different rooms that they've assigned the the ship itself so obviously there was that set which is you know entirely fanciful mm. um but kind of the iconic one of the iconic images of that film definitely definitely then you have the real Belafonte, which was um in i think in the fiction of the sh the film it was a sub hunter that they got from the US navy it was actually a British minesweeper ship ah. uh, that was from 1958. It used to be the HMS Packington. Then it was sold to the South African Navy uh, and was renamed uh, the SAS Walvisby. Sure. Um, and sure. then it was bought by the production designers of the Life Aquatic in Cape Town, towed all the way to Italy, Fucking like hell. redressed, turned into the Bellafonte. Um, it was then bought by a millionaire uh, after the film restored and it now serves as a yacht called the mojo see this is we're talking about sourcing this sort of stuff what yeah. do you do with the life yeah. and history in terms of how it exists if it's a model if it's a real thing mm. crazy and there was there was a period when it was for sale and it was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is a lot of money for a boat like, that size but for a boat that size and also for comparison's sake the uh brownstone where royal tenenbounds is set yeah, yeah. which is a real house in harlem uh, went up for sale around the same time, and it was three point three eight million. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, but anyway, the Bellafonte, I I love it so much. It's so characterful. It's you know, it's got all these details. It's like it's got a little helicopter. It's got its own sub that's associated with it, which I could almost pit because I love that fire. Well, not the final scene, but the, the scene with the where they finally find the jaguar shark. Yeah, is so great of them all cramped into that. So many like. Far too many people crammed into a, the I tiny mean, submarine. That's the iconic poster image. Yes, exactly. Mm. But the Bellafonte itself, the just for those sequences of them traveling around that 
the interior of the ship, whether it mm. is their practical ship or the set that they had with the the cutaway. Yeah. Um, it just really it gets across the the kind of the way that everyone is up in each other's business, mm-hmm. basically. Yes. When you're on a ship, as you said, there are so many practical considerations to it. So much is given over to the motor and all the things that you need to keep a ship running. Mm. And the room that you actually have for yourself is so tiny. Yes, it's true. Because it's, it's minimization of space. It's, it's coffin size. Sort of yes. Like. And when you eat, you all eat in the galley. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's the whole like idea of, well, it's not efficient to go have a you know, sandwich wherever you want it. Mm. It's cooking time. Everyone eats that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And even though you have this huge ship, because of the nature of it, you're forced into each other's personal lives. Yes. And you're overhearing conversations that maybe you shouldn't hear. Or if you're going to plot a a, a, um, a mutiny, you know, you've got to be very careful about, you know, who's mm-hmm, walking past mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and it's just such a, it, it, you know, all of Wes Anderson's films are slight fantasies. There's a kind oh, of a... Yeah. They exist in their own universe. Exactly. Whimsy. There's there's a, yeah, there's a whimsy, a slight tweeness perhaps to them. But it's... There's something, you know, it, it, and Life Aquatic is very much about the fantasy of Jacques Cousteau, essentially. You know, there's a reason that all of the sea animals in it, uh, barring a couple, are uh, stop motion animated. Yeah. You know, and it's it's existing in this heightened reality. And the fact that you have that cutaway, it's less about a real ship and more about the idea of a ship that you would have from reading books as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And it's so perfect. It, it's such a great blend of that fantasy, where oh yeah, of course we've got this little bit that's underwater um, at the front of the ship that's got like a little bubble where you can see out and observe thing. And there's we've got two dolphins uh, that are trained to swim alongside the ship, mm-hmm. and and they 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 you know they they're scouts and stuff, except they're total dicks. <laughs> God damn, I hate these dolphins. Um, <laughs> You know, and it's got it's got a submarine, and it's got a, a helicopter, and it's got a reference library on board for all yeah. of our you know uh, needs and stuff like that. But then you've also got the practical side of it of oh no, actually there's a lot of ladders you have to climb up and down because no, you can't have fucking stairs on a boat. You yeah. know that's yeah. that's room you're wasting. Yeah. You know. Um. So yeah, to me, it's that perfect blend of fantasy and reality jutting up against each other and interacting in really interesting ways. Mm. Um. And it's the yeah there's just there's a lot of character in there of both Steve himself but also all the crew yeah um and yeah. it's that again it's an interesting blend because the the ship it, it, in total it represents him but you can't have one person operating that ship and so everyone's got their own little areas that they've got carved out for themselves like the little editing lab that I think it's Wolodarsky has yes. where he's doing the audio for the documentaries while they're at sea and stuff like that. It, it, yeah. it, it's another one of those sort of cottage industry representations of filmmaking. Yeah. The director's boat is the director's boat, but really you need the sound operator, you need yeah. the film crew, you need the uh, uh, the visual effects people, you need the producers. You know, in the way that he does something with um, the French dispatch mm. and describes the paper. Doesn't mm. do it visually like a cross-section like that, but it's the same like, these are the offices they're all in. It's that Anderson all over, basically. Yeah. But he does it very well and colourfully and and in a very fun way. Yeah. The Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu. Jack, we're around to you again. I'm venturing back onto land. Uh-huh. I feel like my... I don't know, less are getting more and more fantastical, but this is perhaps the most mundane of all of my picks. It's a pig. Mm-hmm. 
It's a pig. Goddamn. It's one big pig. Uh, it is, in fact, a decidedly unspectacular vehicle that is immortalized by one scene in particular. <laughs> uh, listeners, take a moment, have a think. You, you're probably wrong. You know me. But you know my tastes. Everyone has different versions of these things, but just that description alone is going to conjure so many what, images. Yeah, what are people thinking? Want to take you a little moment to have a think. I am, of course, talking about one of my favorite films of all time. One of the things that not defined my childhood, but a film I've probably seen more than most other films in this world. Mm -hmm. The 1992 classic Wayne's World. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm talking about the Murphmobile, which is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, and I, I was doing some research while we were sat down kind of chatting about how we're going to lay out the, uh, mm. the episode and all that kind of stuff. Uh, bear in mind, the film, as I said, comes out in 1992. It is a 1976 American Motors Pacer. So it is like 15 years old at the time of filming. And it just kind of sums up Garth and Wayne's life at the time. They've got this 15-year-old piece of shit car yep. that is famously really weird looking. It's got this kind of square front. And at the back, it kind of like... It's almost like the Homer Simpson car or like a Jetsons <laughs> car. It's this weird, like, rounded bubble thing at the back that yeah. just makes no sense and looks so like, this is a vision of the future. It's like, that just looks a bit shit. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is just straight up a 1976 American Motors Pacer, but it's got flames down the sides of it because these are teenagers, I guess. Uh... <laughs> 35 year old men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mental capacity of possibly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not Bill and Ted. No, no. But yeah, th there's, of course, the scene I'm dancing around and hinting towards is the fucking Bohemian Rhapsody scene. The headbanging scene that just gets me headbanging every single it's, time. It's such a simple and beautiful and accurate representation of when your friends... Start learning how to drive, depending on what country you're in and what age you're allowed to and all that sort of people's conditions and circumstances. You tend to get one piece of shit car because that's what you can afford. One of your friends can drive and you drive. And you get as many people as you can crammed all into the back of it. In yeah. and, you pop, and, and this is the key thing I think is a bit of a, I don't know if it's necessarily still a thing. So you barrel in and you just go anywhere. You, you have no idea what you actually need to go. You just want to drive because you can drive now. You have the freedom of I'm not in my house, my parents, I can just go. I can be in a car the freedom it gives you, and just singing along to a song that you all like. There are so many versions in so many films, in so many cultures, and it mm. always hits home of like, yes, I am free in this moment. The music can be yeah. as loud as I want. And I guess that that still happens. I don't know if kids... I think have, it still happens. But it would be from a Bluetooth connection of your Spotify playlist to a yeah. thing on your yes. car yeah. or whatever. Whereas this is a Queen tape on the tape player. <laughs> they eventually get a CD player, but that's later. Yeah. This is a fucking cassette player. <laughs> is it the second film he gets the uh, the red lace thing on the... Or isn't that the first one? That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's this, yeah, brilliant moment. For those of you who haven't seen Wayne's World, first of all, go and see Wayne's World. I don't know how well it's aged. I'm saying that it's as a person who, who enjoyed it in the 90s and hadn't fine. watched it in 10 years, probably. Oh. I fucking love Wayne's World. Yeah. And it was, a like I said, a formative part of my childhood. Mm. And I have been in those cars <laughs> listening to heavy metal and headbanging and stuff. And the fact that it's fucking Bohemian Rhapsody, which is not heavy metal, not even close to heavy no. metal. Like, Pop rock. Yeah. 
that like the da 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 the heavy bit that kicks in mm. is just like a swing kind of rock thing. Mm, mm. <laughs> Not even that heavy, but compared to all the orchestral epic choral stuff mm. that's been going on, Freddie Mercury's masterful, incredible layering of different vocals and all this kind of stuff that's going on. And then that guitar riff kicks in and the drums come in and you finally get that moment. And apparently all the actors were like, I don't get it. Like, <laughs> what do you mean you don't get it? It's like, I don't know. It's just, just so there's a thing kids do, right? And they hear like rock music and they just start nodding their head enthusiastically. Just do that. And, like, and they've right. got long hair, so they don't have to move it too much. Yeah. It'll they'll look vibrant. Like yeah. Long hair yeah. and stuff. And it's like, just do that and it'll be fine. And they're like, okay. And apparently... They just did not get those five so dudes weird. in that car, and none of them were like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." For whatever reason, because the dudes in their fucking 30s. yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty much between Mike Myers and Dana Carvey and all the rest of them, like, mm-hmm. yeah, just had no idea this was a thing, and that blew my mind because that was such a relatable thing to me as a teen mm. or as like yeah. a preteen yeah. seeing this and being like. I like rock music too. <laughs> I'm going to get my first car and I'm going to headbang him. Yeah. My mate's got his first car. Mm-hmm. We're all going to go and listen to cool music and headbang and all that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. just going to be cool. And the car is just not cool. And that's kind of the point and that's why I mm. love it so much. It represents what fucking losers Wayne and Garth are. Yeah. How, like you said, just like one guy has a car. Sometimes Wayne's driving it. Mostly Garth drives it, but... Whoever is available and not puking in the backseat is <laughs> is going to be driving it kind of thing. There's no glamorization to it. There's no kind of like, oh, wow, yeah, I can't believe. They do that, but it's in kind of a sad way. It's like, whoa, cool, the Mirthmobile. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's terrible. But it's kind of amazing. But again, your first car kind of situation. It's like, that's yeah. cool. Is it, exactly. Is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, mine. Yeah. I, I do feel like we as a culture have kind of, because most modern cars, like we've, we've, We've got to the point now where, you know, even if you're buying like a fourth hand car now, it's probably from like the early 2010s or something, just through the yeah, nature of stuff. Yeah. There's a kind of a generic cleanness to all of those cars. Whereas back in the 90s and the 2000s, you could have some really fucking ugly cars. <laughs> and I feel like teenagers have slightly lost out, you know, your, your late teens, early to- 20s. Yeah, driving a sort of mid 2000s Ford car or okay, K-A and you're like, yeah fine it, yeah it looks fine you know obviously you know if you're a teenager it's probably full of shit and, yeah. and that uglies it up a bit but you know it doesn't compare to like a sort of 1991 ford mondeo or something where it's just just horrible hot yeah, plastic some really boxy rover or something yeah Actually, this is an interesting thing I'm, this is just a bit of a digression about cars for a second I, I mentioned this on the podcast before i think when i first went to america and i saw uh, a sort of 70 sedan kind of regular mm car basically i'm like oh shit mm. i was like what's wrong it's like these things are real <laughs> and because at my age like me i was like late teens early 20s and i was like what's wrong i said like, oh no sorry in britain our cars don't look like that cars from the 70s 80s and 60s and things look different that's mm. why our signs look the way they do with this weird 1950s looking weird car yeah but all the stuff you see in movies like if you think of the 80s and 70s cop mm. dramas and things like that, these long flat boxy yeah um angular things like, yeah that feels alien to me yeah like, cars that just like, feel really wide to boats. a british person <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm like i'm gonna go around little narrow country roads we're yeah. gonna have wide cars in yeah. this country my my, my uh ex-girlfriend's nan or something like that she was like uh gonna give this huge car to, to one of the grandkids at one point i was like this car is really 
fucking wide. Mm. There's like enough room for two people between us. And it's not like an obscenely like huge car. It's, it's mm. like a Cadillac sort of thing. And there was carpet everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> carpet on the roof, on the floor, <laughs> on the. It's like, what is this fucking thing? So weird. Bizarre. Well, you also get two variations of the Mirthmobile. The uh, out of two of the endings for Wayne's World Two. Oh yeah. Time back into Thelma and Louise. There, you get the Thelma and Louise ending, where of course it's turned into a convertible. Yes. And they drive off the cliff, and it's a whole thing. And of course, Aerosmith's entrance at the end of Wayne's World. Book them and they will come. They come in a fucking mirth limo that apparently was real. They actually painted a limo like Fuck that. Uh, that that prop limo still exists, although it has been repainted. Apparently, oh. um, but yeah, the mirth limo keeps appearing, and more bands and more artists keep getting out of it. Mm. Just ridiculous, and I, I I kind of. Just want like a. Well, it works perfectly in universe. It makes sense. Yeah. It's an in joke that you get at that point because it's so established. Yeah. Even though it's such a weird, mundane thing. I kind of want like a little Hot Wheels Mirthmobile, you know? Oh, they definitely exist. Yeah, they yeah. definitely exist. Some shitty little. See, there's us <laughs> saying like, you never get a car for like the thing from Lock. It's like, what about the Mirthmobile? Oh, you definitely get that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking at, we were talking about this earlier. Like, I, I, can't, I can't find a Lock toy. There's one of the characters in Cars is called Locke, which doesn't help. Oh, <laughs> so there's toys of just that. find out what the model of the car is, buy a Matchbox version of that, and get a tiny version of Bane. Yeah, <laughs> or Bronson, yeah, or one of the Craze, yeah, Venom. or whatever <laughs> Venom, a- and any mm. Brock toy you could probably yes. slot in there somewhere. Anyway, Matthew from the Mirthmobile, what about you? My final pick, um, because I've been going in chronological order, ah. and all of these are from my childhood. <laughs> So yeah, we went from 1988 to 1990, and now here we are in 1992. Just like Wayne's World. Just like Wayne's World. So I once, I, 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 once I had Canada's bike, which was guaranteed to be in there, and once I had uh, the Red October, which was always going to be a very close, if not guaranteed to be second in there, obvious choice for me personally. I had a bit of a trouble with the third one because there were too many things that sort of slotted in and out. Like maybe that. It's like when you've got like um, the three or four settings in Mario Kart, and you've got. Well, that obviously this 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 vehicle, obviously these wheels. What about the parachute glider thing? I'm like, I don't fucking know. And you're scrolling through for like hours and think, no, well, that seems to make things worse. So, but I noticed the trend of, oh, hang on a minute, land, sea, air. Mm. I'll do an air thing. That'll be that'll make tons of sense. And I had real difficulty settling on something because I was like, mm, planes are mostly shit unless they're money plane. Um, all these kind of things. Um, and I settled on one that I thought I might get a lot of shit for this, but it's a very good point. I can't believe I didn't come up with it sooner, especially considering I have a fleece version in my house that my wife is usually cocooned in. I'm talking about the magic carpet <laughs> and or just carpet <laughs> from <laughs> Disney's... Part time. Part time. Disney's Aladdin. It's a, it's a weird one. So... If I go to the expanded universe bullshit of like the history of or the secret history of the magic carpet, you know, it's like, oh, he was con- created thousands of years ago by the sorcerer and carpet with a courier or something like that. And it's like, yeah, sure, 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 fine. But nobody cares about that. The truth is, it's a cool bit of CGI and animation, uh, as in cell animation, from this movie. And it's got so much personality and so much presence and is a character. This is the example of it. it's a living character. It's the, it's the Herbie, it's the, it's the cars, from, it's, it's the Lightning McQueen. It is a character that I think Frank Welker does I don't think it has a voice, he doesn't know it is a boo but I'm sure there's some noises, it's like oh it officially has a sound, <laughs> you know, someone's got a voice of it um, 
but it's got so much personality and so much presence and is a deus ex machina so many fucking times <laughs> um and the design is fucking amazing um now i will say this much aladdin hideously offensive movie yeah. which about like does uh, wayne's world age very well aladdin is if not very 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 high in my favorite disney films because it's ones that i grew up with as a child very important to me etc but i fully acknowledge how fucked up it is because it's classic otherisms and uh you know uh aladdin and jasmine have given very for lack of a better word westernized faces whereas there's very very aggressive uh facial features on mm. anyone who's a bad guy and it's like yeah. yeah and that's that's just you know that's classic you know design but like, yeah but you've also tapped into some really hideous subtle racism here you fucks that aside oh and obviously the opening title music being where they cut off your ear if they don't like your yeah. face and it's like well they've changed better change that shitting lyric anyway that aside the character of the carpet is fun and cool and i remember seeing that in the cinema i don't know like must have been eight years old i don't know no, no because it's 1992, but it came out on type, think, 93 in Britain because they had to get these things over here. And just seeing that CGI escape sequence from the, um, um, from the Cave of Wonders, just magnificent. So, yeah, carpet. It's interesting, like, thinking, I would never in a million years have thought of the flying carpet. Mm. For whatever reason, it would never cross my mind. Fair. And it's weird to think that, like, yeah, that this is one of the living vehicles, I yes. guess. Yes. It has a personality and stuff. And along similar lines, so many people love Doctor Strange's cape, Doctor Strange's cloak. Oh, yeah. The cloak of levitation, because it will play tricks on people and be silly and, like, tap you on the shoulder mm. and spin you around and all that Cartoon. kind of stuff. Cartoony. It's, it's the carpet. It's the carpet. <laughs> it's the carpet. It, it's like a dis- direct descendant of seeing the carpet doing all this silly stuff and, like, wa- walking on its edges and all this yeah. kind of stuff, flying about and pulling pranks and all this kind of thing. Wrapping up bad guys. Wrapping up yeah. bad guys, yeah. exactly, yeah. It's this brilliant kind of personification of a inanimate object that I never thought I would need to see. Even if you say magic carpet, you don't necessarily think like, and you think, oh, it flies. You don't necessarily think, oh, it has a personality. Yeah. 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 And the fact that it does is just brilliant and ridiculous and hilarious mm. and adds just an extra layer to that group of characters. Mm. Especially considering from the, I mean, it's very Disneyfication, but yeah. the, the, the classic. Um, we covered this in a in a previous episode of Sequelizers years and years and years ago. But the idea of well, we did Return of Jafar exactly, mm. yeah. The the um the source material inspiration from mm. a Thousand One Tales of Arabian Nights kind of thing. Arabian uh, yeah, exactly. That was just a carpet. It's a thing. Mm. It's a it's a vehicle for lack of a better word. Mm. Um, it transports the characters hither and thither. Mm. Um, and obviously in this case you get to see. It's a friend of the genie. They know each other. It's a rival for Abu because they're both mm. the squeaky inanimate mm. toy <laughs> thing. It's uh, 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 at the same time, if you think about one of the most iconic songs in their uh, whole new world, they go around a lot of the world. Yes. Yeah. Somehow. So it literally, and it doesn't make any sense. They should fall the fuck off that thing. <laughs> there's no seats. There's no. Yeah. It's, it's as just, soon as you get, you go up on the roof of a relatively tall building or not even a relatively tall building. Mm. Four stories, five stories. It's windy up there. Wind will just yep. throw you off that shit. Climb a tree, it's bad enough. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, obviously, the, you know, it's got your back and it'll save you and things. It's very comfortable because it's a carpet and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And that's magnificent. I think it's, it's just so ingrained in my mind from childhood. Mm. That I'm like, oh, yeah, that is a vehicle. I'm taking it. <laughs> it means I've got two animated ones in there, but still. Yeah, there we go. 
Um, so, Tim, mm. what's, your, uh, what's your final pick? Speaking of animation and fantasy and magic. Holy shit. And we've also talked a lot about vehicles as settings, the kind of vehicles that can operate as someone's home, like mm-hmm. a submarine, that you can live and board it, as well as traveling around in it. Yes. My final pick is Howl's Moving Castle. Oh. Yeah. What film's that from, Tim? That's from the film Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> shit. Is that an adaptation of a book? Yes, it's the adaptation of a book called Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> Damn, that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And again, wonderful representation of the character. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So in the book, which I've never read, but Diane Wynne-Jones, I believe, um, it doesn't actually say how it moves around. And you have Miyazaki come along, becomes interesting in, in adapting this thing. And it was like, I like the idea of giving it like chicken legs or something. Um, <laughs> Very Baba Yaga kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Um, and it ends up being this amazing sort of, uh, and, and the whole film is dealing with the relationship between kind of technology and people, a very common Miyazaki theme, technology versus nature, techno- how people interact with technology, the kind of rise of industrialization, all these sorts of things. And you have the castle being this sort of almost steampunky aesthetic in certain parts. There's a lot of like exterior pipes, but mm-hmm, there's also mm-hmm. like water wheels and stuff like that on it. And it sort of represents, I think, to me anyway, a kind of an earlier relationship with technology where technology didn't rule mm. us. It's it's a much more symbiotic relationship, which, you yeah, know, yeah. it's which is why as Howl kind of becomes more and more distressed over the course of the film, the house also falls apart and shrinks mm-hmm. until it's just a platform with like a couple of legs and Calcifer, who's the, the, the fire spirit at the heart of it, keeping it going. Mm-hmm. And so much of that film is about relationships between people as well and, and, and kind of people and objects, but objects that are given life. There's the castle, there's Calcifer, who's the fire spirit, there's Sophie, there's Howl. Mm-hmm. And the the kind of the web of their relationships and how they interact with each other, how they regard each other, whether they regard each, you know, to start with, Howl is very much treats Calcifer as this, you are just a workhorse for me. You do your job. You keep the house going. You know, you keep the castle moving. Yeah. Castle, you know, is just a place I live. And a certain part of that film is is about Howl coming to acknowledge these other things in his life as people worth consideration um and yeah i think the 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 castle is such a great representation of that because it's so clearly a reflection of him and yet for a lot of the film he just kind of he's off doing his own thing he doesn't regard it and it's up to other people to take care of it and then once he finally kind of recognizes oh no i'm not i'm not this lone Mm. even though i'm incredibly flamboyant and dramatic and you know emo as fuck (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I have these relationships. I am connected to other people. Um, and that is what allows him to kind of rebuild the castle from, from the situation that it's in and, and get it back at the end to this, this new form. Yeah. Um, and it's gorgeous. Like, obviously it's a Studio Ghibli film. It's a Miyazaki creation. It's going to be amazing looking, but the, the detail, they used a lot of kind of cutting edge at the time, digital technology but using it in a way that integrated so perfectly with the Studio Ghibli style. And it's just such a magical, like, there's so many, it, it, much of the style of the castle itself, where it's like this hodgepodge, things piled on top of each other, junkyard, like, it looks like a junkyard has kind of risen up and become ambulatory. 
you know, you've got so many different concepts piled on top of each other here. You've got the fire spirit that runs it. You've got the the castle itself that is moving around the countryside, just kind of to, to wherever it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the doors in it that can take you through to different places, depending on how it's set, so that Hal can pretend to be one wizard in one place and another wizard in another, <laughs> yeah. and play, trying to play sides against each other. Um, and and I, you know, of of all the vehicles uh, on my list, it's probably the one I would most want because you know it's both a house and a vehicle. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's 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 amazing. It's cozy in a way that most ve- you know <laughs> most vehicles are built for utility. As we said, submarines, you know, boats. There's there's very little comfort there. Um, you know, and you can have something like the Mirthmobile, where you invest it with so much personality, yeah. and you make do with this shitty vehicle, but you 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 have so much love that you've poured into it. Yeah. Whereas Howl's Moving Castle is is it's almost built for comfort first it's built as a as a refuge it's a home that moves more than anything exactly, exactly. Yeah. it feels like one of those sort of 17 or 1800s uh romani caravans which is so beautifully crafted yeah and everything is functional and there's like you know all the various kitchen wares on the wall mm. perfectly and you look at it and I think that is amazing mm. yeah that's a, that's a, that's that's craftsmanship yes whereas both, in the past both it would have been a bad within thing. the fiction of the film and looking at it as a product of it, art precisely. and artists who yes. have worked on it is is an amazing feat of craftsmanship that also feels very thrown together and natural mm-hmm. um just just a gorgeous film and, a, and a, an amazing piece of character yeah. vehicle yeah. synergy agreed it's one of the coolest like most striking designs especially if you see it in real life you see a model of it or like a oh, 3d, so it's like a 3D real, print of it of it like <laughs> You actually see this physical thing in 3D space in front of you. It, the level of detail and intricacy and, as you said, Tim, this weird blending of different styles and different eras of technology is so cool and fascinating. I remember watching um, a YouTube video of somebody building like one of the model kits, and it is so intricate. It's like, oh, my God. I know you build Gunpla, Matthew. You built many, many a model kit in your time. And I was just like exhausted just even looking at this thing. Just getting one bit wrong means that this bit doesn't connect to this other bit. And then, oh, the water wheel doesn't spin properly and all this kind of stuff. It's just an incredible piece of design that you don't really like see the whole thing and appreciate it straight away in the film. It took me literally seeing it in 3D, like actually being able to look around it and rotate it and look all the different parts. Mm. Because it looks so different from basically every angle whether it's coming straight at you or you're seeing it walking off into the distance or as it glides past somebody's window and all this kind of stuff. It's got so many different layers and so many different pieces (laughs) to it that just, as you said, perfectly come together to form. It makes sense for Hal to have this kind of hodgepodge, Mm. bizarre, magical madhouse that just perfectly encapsulates all of its residents in this weird, Mm. weird kind of home on legs, basically. Yeah. And it just feels like that that kind of idea that we have of kind of wizard eccentricity that you know the the the, the Harry Potter films try to you know capture to a certain extent. Yeah. And yeah. this just you know, like why has it got a tongue, Hal? Why is it <laughs> why has it got a mouth with a tongue that's just hanging out? What that, oh, I tongue, just fancy- what that tongue do, Hal? Yeah, what that tongue do? Um, and uh, it's just like oh, I just you know I was I was feeling in uh, yeah. You, you licking people with that tongue, Hal? We need to have a word. 
you know, be like a sort of Bob Ross response, like everything needs a smile. It's like shut <laughs> the fuck up. <laughs> everything needs a tongue is just not a, something a fluffy little tongue. Work. Yeah, just a, just you know, just this thing. Yeah, using it for deep, no accidents, deep, only happy little mistakes. <laughs> yeah. and a fucking great tongue. Jack, hello. The final pick of the episode. One of my all-time favorite vehicle designs and one of the most iconic and influential in science fiction. I'm not going to beat around the bush on this one. I mean, we've done it a few times on this show. Already, the Already. listeners are conjuring images. I know, I know, I know. The spinner from Blade Runner. Shit, yeah. Yeah. Flying car. There's a, Flying there's a, car. There's a thing here. Just uh, Sorry, Jack, I don't mean to cut you off, but... How rude. Cop cars, man. Yeah. Because of the veneration of, of cops in films... When you get like future or past things, you, you get the you know the police presence in multiple different countries. Seeing how their police cars look and how films treat that is fascinating. And Blade Runner ties directly into that because it's very much implied in the Blade Runner world in this distant future of 2019. Mm. Oh, oh no, it's in the past. My God, that was pre-pandemic. Yeah. Oh my God, remember the good old days. Anyway, in LA in 2019. It's the cops and it's the rich people that have these flying cars. Like, societally, it basically has replaced, like, helicopters and stuff. Mm. You do not have every fucking Tom, Dick, and Harry flying about Mm. in a car. It's not the fifth element. It's not the fifth element, which Mm. is, of course, taken inspiration from... Mm. Some good cars in there. Or the Incal, mostly. Mm -hmm. But, like... (laughs) Yeah. um, But, yeah, the fact that you have this iconic design and... Going in and seeing Deckard and seeing Gaff and all this kind of stuff. Cops, former cops, and that iconic scene of it taking off on the alleyway and like mm. flying away. Mm. It's, a, it's a gif I've watched on repeat many times. <laughs> yeah. Elevation uh, above the slum. Exactly. Mm. It's all, unsurprisingly, it's dystopian, futuristic sci fi stuff. And it has commentary about class mm. and capitalism yeah. and wealth and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I find it fascinating that I never, obviously, growing up and watching Blade Runner and stuff, you think about, oh, the philosophical side of things. and Was Roy Batty alive and blah, 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 blah. Oh, is, is Deckard actually the good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he a replicant? Oh, no, who knows? And it's those little bits of attention to detail, the world building of Blade Runner and its sequel, 2049 that I think really made me fall in love with both of those films. You get things like The Spinner that just tell a story without you having to actually hear any dialogue or read a fucking visual dictionary like you would in Star Wars. (laughs) As much as I would love a visual dictionary for Blade Runner, I'm sure there's one out there somewhere already. There's a million fucking cross-sections of Mm. spinners throughout the years. And... It kind of like set the standard for flying cars going forward. You mentioned Fifth Element, Matt. That's a perfect example. Like you've got them going through huh, Soldier, the Blade Runner sequel, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the 90s. Uh, and then once you get through to 2049, they have become the norm. Because we're 30 years in the future from that mm. future, now past 20, yes. 2019, yes. Mm. it starts off as this. Sig- signal of wealth and as you said Matt rising above the the paupers and mm. the slums and the noodle shops and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. but in 2049 it is just an every person thing mm. only rich people and very well off people 30 years ago had a mobile phone spot yeah. on exactly it's the evolution of technology and obviously we thought like yeah we'll have flying cars by 2019 it's like mm. Mm, you know you know 
very ambitious. <laughs> no. You had high hopes for the human race. We're still killing each other over like <laughs> oil and plastic yeah. and stuff. But, but you will be able to tell it to play your music that you don't own, but you pay a subscription <laughs> service so you have access to every <sighs> song in the world ever. Oh, and, mm-hmm. Are we living in the dystopia, Tim? Is this what we're oh, We are most definitely yeah. in <laughs> the shitty timeline, yeah. If you just realised that, folks, I apologise in advance. <laughs> Um, but even going like going through touching on Star Wars again, there are spinners on Coruscant because yeah. it's this mm. like hyper technological. One of my favorite words in Star Wars, Acumenopolis, which mm-hmm. is a planet that is entirely covered in cities. Mm-hmm. There is no plant life left. There is no seas. Coruscant is one big city, big parking lot, like, like space. Cybertron, mm. basically. Yeah, um, this entirely industrialized planet mad and you have all these flying cars and stuff obviously you have in like attack of the clones the big speeder chase thing but there are other inspired things around that and of course star wars is fucking et is in star wars like it's full mm. of references to other science fictiony stuff mm. but that spinner design with kind of like the the front cut out of it and you've got the the two wheels on either side inspired some of the pod race designs and it's inspired everything Basically, any flying car you've seen since the 80s often has its roots in Sid Mead's design. That is the original creator and designer of it. Has that original roots. And even the interior is cool. The interior has that screen. It's all kind of futuristic, but somehow not futuristic in that kind of alien way where... It's futuristic, but it's all fucking CRT monitors still. Yeah, it's it, there's actual phrase for that kind of futurism. Um, and that it's functional. Retro futurism? I, I guess it is. Like, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. The, the one that I always associate it with, and this is a real 90s kids will know uh, thing, is Jerry Anderson's oh. Space Precinct, yeah. uh, which Space had Precinct. flying police cars yeah. in it. Um, and I, I think like I, I think because I because of my age, like I definitely experienced that first, and then saw Blade Runner and was like, ah, that's where that's from. Ah, he's a big space precinct fan. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, actually. Space Precinct, space precinct twenty forty. When did that come out? Was that nineties? Like ninety four. Mm. Yeah. And I think I saw Blade Runner for the first time when it was re released on video mm. with the the director's cut. Must be at the same time, so I might have had the exact same experience, Tim. Yeah, yeah, weird, interesting. Yeah, so even talking about the kind of uh, the Tim, the cut in half, the lovely, the lovely diagrams, <laughs> and mm-hmm. as you can imagine, the nerdy people that made Blade Runner, Sid Mead and his team, is full of that shit. So if you just Google Blade Runner spinner, you get all the concept art, <laughs> you get all. You get all the yeah, all the amazing like diagrams like this is the engine bit and this is how this works and you press this button and this happens and this is the like fake technology of how it stays afloat and all this kind of stuff. I absolutely love that kind of stuff. You even get it in like fucking Back to the Future too when they go to the mm-hmm. future and it's yeah. like oh it's all the flying cars and stuff. I just love me some flying cars. I love when you can take something that is like the evolution of technology and make that say something about the world and the characters and the society and the culture that it is. Because science fiction, especially dystopian science fiction and futuristic, aiming for like, you know, on Earth future, mm-hmm. basically, is inherently saying something about your worldview and your, and your ideals of society. And, oh, this is the bad, evil dystopian thing. It's full of socialism. You're like, mm, yeah. okay, I see where you're going, Ken. Like, <laughs> oh, it's evil. There's a big totalitarian government and all this kind of stuff. You're like, 
okay, right. And mm -hmm. just the fact that just having these cars, these flying cars specifically in there says something about the world and LA specifically at that time <laughs> in that world. Yeah. Just it's just masterful storytelling. And you like I said, I watched it for years without even thinking about the consequences of that. And then going back and like rewatching Blade Runner leading up to when twenty forty nine came out a few years ago. It was like a few years ago. It's probably like fucking ten years old at this point. And uh it was twenty seventeen. It so was, yeah. That's five, five years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Hell. I know. Feels like oh, it's two years old. Like, oh, two years of the pandemic two years and the pandemic. Yeah. yeah, two years plus a pandemic. It's fine. But yeah, going back and thinking about how that does lay out so much about that world and and so much about LA at that time in that universe just fascinates me. And the fact that something mm -hmm. as simple as cut the front off the bit of the car and make it fly, and then give it to the cops is like mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah, it's like just like cut the engine out and so, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the propulsion this. things are on the bottom, right? And yeah. You're like yeah fascinating I, I think the spinner is an all-time cool design influenced so many others since then that I, mm. I think it's i couldn't go throughout this episode without mentioning it and kind of touching on going from the sea of the orca the legendary jaws we're gonna need a bigger boat and all that yeah. kind of stuff a classic thing from my childhood which is just a fucking car from the 70s mm. and a film from the 90s yeah and then what i consider to be like a key part of influential science fiction that yeah. is then that car taking to the skies kind of did a land sea air thing that you did as you well, did, Matt. Yeah. yeah. In a roundabout way. True, true, true. So yeah. The spinner from Blade Runner. If you haven't seen Blade Runner, go and see Blade Runner. If you haven't <laughs> seen Blade Runner 2049, shut up, Stuart. <laughs> Arkham on the Discord. We yeah, know. Yeah. We know. 2049's amazing. Go and watch 2049 as well. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling. Fantastic. Harrison Ford actually acts. It's a fucking miracle. <laughs> he tries. As he tries. He, he, he turns up. And he punches Ryan Gosling in the face. Yeah. It's great. For real. Mm. <laughs> well, there are nine of our picks for iconic and interesting and personal mm. favorites across the history of movie vehicles. I'm sure there's plenty more, listeners. I feel like we could, we could have had ten apiece and still had <laughs> stuff to discuss. I oh, God. Picked the Don't. Lamb no, discovery. don't encourage no, him, Matthew. From we, no, Park. no, I no, gone no. With that carriage from Nosferatu. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> carriage from Nosferatu. Yeah, it's pretty fucking badass. Stop it. The carriage from Van Helsing. Oh, oh. Dear. <laughs> Why do you do this? To fine, me? We finally got him. But yes, I'm sure, listeners, you have plenty of suggestions. Oh, I can't believe you didn't talk about that. Let us know on Twitter. Let us know on Discord. Please do. If there's something iconic we haven't mentioned. Something that is a personal favorite of yours from a film, whatever it is. Tweet that shit. Tweet that shit. We are Sequelizers on Twitter. You can find the links to all of our social media and the Discord and our Patreon and our YouTube and our shop. Basically everything you could need from us here at Sequelizers by going to Sequelizers.com. The one-stop shop for all the Sequelizers stuff. The community on our Discord is really, really friendly, really welcoming as well. Mm -hmm. There is a full welcoming committee of gifts at this point. <laughs> so as soon as you join, you get diehards, you get weird little robots and stuff, you get penguins, <laughs> all kinds of stuff, mm. welcoming you to our fantastic community. That is nearly 200 strong now, which is very cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we talk, we kind of do deep dives on episodes if people have questions about it. We'll say, oh yeah, I did this thing and that was edited from this thing and that was cut from that thing and blah, blah, blah. We kind of do like post-show breakdowns and... The three of us are always chatting rubbish. Nah, Matt's talking mm. about anime. I'm talking about wrestling. It's all just... It's the VIP room in the back. Kind of, yeah. 
But it's free. But it's free. You can come in if you want. <laughs> exactly. No ropes. It's, our, it's a convention hall, basically. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, if you'd like to tweet me directly, I am JLW Chambers on Twitter and Instagram. Matthew, how can people find you on the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. Uh, you can go to theredrighthand.co.uk and read my reviews. You can go to cheesement.com and see the things that I make. Tim, if I need a ticket to ride you, where do I get it? It's oh. <laughs> um, a very, very long line there, Matthew. I know, but I need to go where to queue for the VIP. So yeah, in line. Go, you can go. It's like one of the, the meat counter at the supermarket. You pull one of those little tabs. Is it really like the one in Beetlejuice, though, where I pull out and the whole reel comes out? I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'll be here forever. <laughs> a lot of meat. Yep. Go to trivia underscore lad on Twitter. That is where I talk about various things and retweet nonsense. And uh, it's the best place to find me on the internet when I'm not tootling around on the Discord. Fair. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash equalizers. We mentioned it earlier. If you would like to support us monetarily, that is the best way to do it. Of course, if you can't, you can review us on various podcast apps. Spotify has a new star rating system. You can only do it on the app version, not the desktop version. I don't know why it's Spotify. They're rolling it all out and stuff. But please do go there and give us a lovely review if you would be so kind. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can do it on Google you can do it on Podchaser. You can do it across pretty much every podcast platform Sp- has it. Spotify own. was the last holdout, and now it's got them. Pretty so much, you've got yeah. very little excuse. <laughs> if you're listening to us, you can probably rate us on there somewhere, and we would very much appreciate if you did. It helps basically spread the show out to people who haven't heard us before. Gets us higher in the charts and more recommendations to more people searching mm-hmm. for other film podcasts and stuff like that. So, if you're able to do that, we would very, very much appreciate it. On that note, we'll be back next week with, surprise, surprise, something completely different. It's the end of season. Every <laughs> I don't even different. remember what it is. Neither do I. Just, I. I'm going to check. Let's have I a do. Look. It's different. Okay. How different is it? It's Let's have a different. Look. It is very different. Very different. It is, in fact, a Patreon pick it is. next week. It is. And uh, here's a little tease for you. Oh. We've done this ourselves many times. Ooh. A wanking episode. Yeah. Threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week, listeners. Uh...